1: Busy show tonight, we are going to talk boxing, we're going to talk rowing, we're going to talk the NBA, we're going to talk some cricket, we're going to talk some Australian rugby, but more importantly, I want you to talk to me. Talk back is a better experience when you do jump on the phone on 0800 150 811 is the number. Very shortly, cricket commentator Garth Galloway on the programme. I want to look back on this remarkable test, England beating Pakistan, day five by 74 runs. They're calling it arguably the best test victory outside of England for an England cricket team. They're talking about the revolution that England is creating through the vision of coach Brendan McCullum and their captain Ben Stokes. Now we've got some audio here from Nasser Hussain, which I want to play because we're going to kick it off with this. Garth Galloway standing by off the back of it. Love to get your thoughts but this is a really good summation from the former England cricket captain on this remarkable performance in Raul
2: You think you've seen everything in this game until you see the last five days. There was no reason at all on that feather bed of a pitch there should have been a result apart from one thing we forgot and that's Stokes and McCullum. The rate they got their runs throughout the game and then to go out, that was one thing, to go out there and get 20 wickets on that pitch. I think it's the best bit of captaincy in Test Match Cricket. I have ever seen to produce a result like that. Um, And the aspects of that then, firstly the declaration which got absolute vindication here
1: tonight, and then the way that he marshalled his resources today.
2: Everything, very rarely do you get a a five days where you get everything spot on. The way he sends his batters out the door to go out and have fun and score at 6.7 runs and over, um, to get you ahead of the game, to buy you time towards the end of the game. Then you time your declaration spot on. You know, you said last night there'd been no England captain that would have declared at tea. You know, stages today, people are saying, really, have you got this right, Ben Stokes? Well, he got it absolutely spot on. Every decision he made today about keeping the old ball, keeping himself back for the old ball, getting that ball reverse swinging, whether to take the new ball, he pretty much got every decision right. And his, and his cricketers and his team back him up, you know. They, they will run through a brick wall for him. Anderson, a 40-year-old, 40, 40 coming in on day five, bowling that spell. Ollie Robinson, with doubts about his fitness a year ago, producing spells like that. Towards the end, giving leach the new ball, he had to a little bit because of lights, but again, leach delivers for him, so it was an amazing he described it himself as one of england 's greatest ever away wins and it 's very difficult to argue with that yeah, he 's not a great student of history ben i don 't know how much you 'd know about england 's
3: previous wins, but I think those of us who 've been around a long time and, and maybe those who do know a
2: bit more about England's dim and distant victories abroad this has to rank amongst their finest wins doesn't it? Well you're more of a historian than me but I can't remember either in my playing days watching cricket growing up or commentating a better performance a performance where you have to get everything right burst every sinew and to you know walk the walk after talking the talk we're not playing for a draw on this pitch people saying well hold on you might have to I think once he's done that and then you put in a performance like that, um, I would say it is one of their greatest ever victories away from home.
1: Remarkable performance considering that England scored more than 500 runs on the first day, declared at 657, Pakistan come out and scored 579. You're thinking there's no way there's going to be a result. It's the most benign wicket you've seen. And yet England under Stokes and McCullum find a way. Arguably, New Zealand's finest cricket commentator now joins us on the programme, at Garth Galloway. Garth, good evening. Welcome.
4: Hi. G'day. How are you, mate? I, I enjoyed listening to that, and it, it really does. I mean, Edson and Hussein are so good and, um, you know, understated, but uh, summing it up perfectly, I think.
1: Are they changing the game?
4: Um, well, well, they are in a way. I mean, I think you, you saw Pakistan probably scoring at a faster rate than they would have. Um, you know, I, I think sides are going to have to learn, uh, you know, with England. that it's, it's just full noise, isn't it? And they are going to be aggressive against you. It's not always going to work, Mark. And, and you know, England have said that. And they lost that first test against South Africa uh, this year um, and then won the next two. So it's not always going to work. It's not always going to be successful. But they've won seven out of eight under McCullum and Stokes. And that's a pretty good record. Um Are they changing the face of the game? They're changing the way they're playing. Uh, The issue is whether uh, other sides are prepared to go along for it. But the the reality is, if they're not, uh, then they're going to end up getting beaten because uh, the cricket's compelling. And I think the other thing you've got is they've got the tools. You know, it's one thing to say we want to play the game in this way. But at the moment, um, they seem to have the tools and the players with the ability under Stokes and McCullum to go out there and doing it. And I'm not just talking about the batters. I'm talking about the bowlers as well. And you heard Atherton and Hussain referring to them. They were stoic and courageous. And, uh, you know, England have an embarrassing riches of medium paces. The only thing, the only thing that sits in the back of my mind, uh, Mark, is uh, Australia's tour to England next year and, and what will happen there. (laughs) <laughs>
1: and yeah, i can't wait yeah look i was going to ask you that and you sort of answered my next question in that answer there and that's about do countries now adopt the style or do they stick to the more traditional way of playing the game which let's be honest is still faster than it once was in terms of the runs being scored in a day and then tactically look at a way of bringing England undone through their aggression
4: well you know if 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 they i, I think sides so, so, for example, England coming out here and playing a couple of tests against New Zealand uh, next year, early next year. You know, England, New Zealand are going to have to look very carefully about how they take on this England side. Because if, for example, a pitch is reasonably flat uh, and England won the toss and bat, you just know that they're going to be trying to score five or six runs and over, five anyway, uh, in our conditions. And the, the, the problem with that from opposition sides is it means that they score 400 runs in a day. Uh, even in a place like New Zealand, they could do that. Uh, 90 overs, you know. So it's it's it, you, you just end up getting behind the game mm. if you're not prepared to try and get out there. You know, you're always playing for a draw if you're not prepared mm. to take them on, and that's that's the problem with it. And I think you know when you look at I, I was looking at that New Zealand England series earlier in this year. You know, at Trent Bridge, England chased down 299, so nearly 300, and in, in the first innings they averaged 5.37 and then 5.44 chasing mark. It's just incredible. And New Zealand in that test scored at 2.8 and 3 in their inning. So those are you know, more traditional, more conservative uh, scores, and I'm not critical of New Zealand in any way. But, uh, you know, they, they are going to have to find a way. If, if England are going to keep doing this, other sides are going to have yeah. to play catch-up on the trade.
1: It's funny, though. All the cricketers these days play so much one day in T20 cricket. So it's, I mean, they're used to playing a fast form of the game but it's almost like well let's put them in white clothing let's give them a red ball and then suddenly everybody starts to go back into their traditional shells where it's almost a sense with McCullum and Stokes it's like well guys let's just look at this to say three t20 games in a day or four t20 games in a yep. day forget the white uniform imagine you're in the colour uniform forget that being a red ball imagine it's a white ball and go and do your thing
4: I agree. And, you know, if you think about McCullum's, um, what was it, his second last innings in Test cricket when he got the fastest hundred against Australia uh, 2015, you know, and, 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 and that was an incredible innings. And, and again, I don't think uh, that, you know, but for the advent of t- T20 cricket and, uh, and a lot of white ball cricket as well, I'd be, you know, surprised if he would ever have been able to play an innings like that. So, the game has changed so much. Not, not all players play all forms of the game, of course, uh, Mark, but the very good ones, you know, people like, you, you know, you see Besto's a good, uh, you know, one day cricketer. You see Stokes playing in all forms of the game. You know, there are a lot of them who, who cross over. Mm-hmm. And this fellow Brooke, who got 100 in the first innings and then 80 in the second innings in his first test, uh, quite an incredible talent from Yorkshire. Um, you know, p- playing in the England T20 and one day side as well. So, you know, they've got players who are uh, cross-pollinating, if you like, between the various mm. forms of the game. And it makes them very potent. Uh, in terms of their chess cricket.
1: One thing that seems to be noticeable, that pitch preparation around the world seems a lot more standardised now, and the pitches appear to be a lot more batter-friendly, and it's almost like England have cottoned onto that. I think the New Zealand team this year expected a little bit more out of the English wickets, and we saw some very, very big totals being scored in the month of June in England, which was uncharacteristic. So if that's the way the game's going, if the wickets, there's not a lot in it for the bowlers anymore. I mean, England, England are the early adopters.
4: Yeah, they are. Um, Although, you know, I think you will see in some pitches, I mean, Christchurch, I mean, talk about the New Zealand conditions, Christchurch, it usually moves around on the first day quite a lot. It's usually quite green. Um, You know, in England, on the the first day, occasionally over there, and certainly in the the South African test at Lord's, the ball, uh, sorry, at um, at Lord's, I think, the ball did move around quite a lot. So, So I think, I mean, I like the English pitches because they do tend to move early on that first day, and that's fine. Uh, but but raw pindi is just something completely different. It's, it is a road. I mean, I I think test cricket is better, Mark, when uh, we go back to that slightly more um, what you would you know call a traditional approach, where you know the the, the team winning the toss does get an advantage, putting us you know putting a side in it and the ball moves around a bit, and then of course you're looking for spin on days four and five. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, I, I I'm just actually amazed that the ICC allow a pitch to be presented for test cricket like we see in Real Pindi. I don't think it does anything for the game. Yes, England pulled off this miracle, but any other side, that would have been, you know, that would have been, you know, one and a half innings, gone the five days, six or seven players all scoring hundreds, and we would have moved on to the next test, knowing that from almost the first ball there was never going to be a result. That's not a good thing for test cricket.
4: No, and we produce pitches like that in New Zealand. You know, when 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 I was growing up and and, you know, God, it's a while ago, but the pitches were uncovered. <laughs> and um, and then covers came in, of course, and that improved them quite a lot, depending on the quality of the covers. Uh, and then, you know, but then when I was commentating, you know, first class cricket when Radio Sport was covering all of the first class games, I can remember uh, doing games at uh, Kiwi 2 Park in Christchurch where, you know, they battled out for 600 runs for first innings points, you know, 600 and or something. So we produced a lot of pitches. I, we got into that mentality, I think, that flat pitches meant that they were good mm. pitches. And my argument at that stage was always: this is just killing cricket, and who would want to be a bowler? You know, you have to have bounce, you have to have a little bit of movement early on, uh, and you have to have pitches mm. that are going to take spin. And I think, you know, New Zealand have got a long way to go in that mm. regard.
1: You mentioned there that England have won, I think, seven out of their last eight Tests. I think New Zealand have lost seven out of their last nine. We've got stead. Yep and Williamson, they've got McCullum and Stokes, boy you couldn't get two opposite ends of the spectrum I mean as a New Zealand cricket fan I'd rather take the McCullum-Stokes approach than the Stead-Williamson I mean what do we do here? How does New Zealand play test cricket going forward? What should be the long term vision? Uh, well, for, yeah, I mean, for too you know, long my... it's been boring and conservative and le- Until the McCullum era I mean McCullum changed it here in New Zealand as well But he, he, he practiced what he preached But now that he's gone it's almost Oh let's go back to the default city We've talked about the lack of quality spinners We just don't seem to take any risks We you know, we just seem to play sort of conventional boring cricket
4: Yeah I, I, I agree You know, I think we're very flat in terms of um, what we're doing And I think we've relied on, the, on, on, on too many of the same players for too long And I think we're paying the price for it now um, you know the McCullum, the the, the McCullum Stokes sounds quite interesting. Looking at the Test cricket championship, England have played twenty games in that championship, which goes from twenty twenty one to twenty twenty three. They so they played twenty tests. They've won eight of them, and those, you know, one of those was under uh, Joe Root and his seventeen tests as and uh, his last seventeen tests as captain, and then seven out of eight under McCullum and Stokes. We have to find a way to be more positive. You know, we've got the, the riches in, in Bolt and Saudi who are magnificent. And, you know, when those two players go, they will leave a massive hole in New Zealand cricket. And Bolt already is, um, is signalling that he doesn't want to be tied to New Zealand, as we well. know. Fair enough, he's, he's done an awful
5: lot for New Zealand.
4: Um, you know, I, I've said to you on a number of occasions, we have to know how to play spin bowlers. You know, I think what what what... These things highlight just how conservative New Zealand cricket has become, and I I agree with you in your observations. Look at, uh, for example, Leach, and it's very clear, and I think you can have some comparisons between Williamson and and Ajax Patel, perhaps. As I've said to you many times, I don't think Williamson's a good captain of spin bowlers. I don't think he uses them well um, in all forms of the game. Uh, you know, I mean, in, in, in one-day cricket, he's got a very good uh, bowler. And, uh, and in fairness, I think most of the time he uses him pretty well. But in yeah, test yeah, cricket...
1: Yeah. But but, um, but, but just, just on that, carth I mean, test cricket, it's about bowling sides out. One-day cricket and T20 cricket, it's about reducing the number of runs. And there's a fundamental difference, therefore, in the type of bowler that you play at test cricket versus the type of bowler that you might play at one-day level.
4: Yeah. So the question you might ask yourself then is, why did to pay twenty five tests? I think twenty two of them under Williamson. You know that, that that's the point, and and he was never going to bowl a side out. And, and the only the time that he looked like he was going to do it, he took three uh, wickets before stumps um, at the Bay Oval against England, and looked set the bowling out the next day and didn't take another wicket. You recall that they uh, they picked up the last wicket with I think Wagner right in the last sort of over of the day. Uh, mm. So. You know, we've got Patel, and I've again mentioned it many times, 14 wickets in Mumbai, uh, December 2021. has bowled two overs in test cricket since then. You know, um, Bracewell's played a test. They've tried Ravindra um, in that series in India. they pick bowlers who are part-time spinners but can bat at uh, six or seven because they're worried about the batting. You know, they need to ask for more out of the top four. And we saw in England that the top four really struggled and it was Mitchell and Blundell who carried them through. Um, they're going to have to get a lot more out of that top four and they're going to have to, uh, you know, I think they have to have a captain in an environment that says we're going to play a thin bowler because Leach, look look at Leach and Will Jacks, for example, and Livingston. So Livingston played in his first test in this one in Rappondi he got injured, didn't bowl. Uh, so they brought in Will Jacks. Now his first-class bowling average is something like 50. He's an offie, and he's a pretty average one, but he took six for 160 in in his first test. Uh, And, you know, you have Leach picking up the last wicket. He he took two for 190 in the first inning, so he was expensive. But remember, against New Zealand, he took 10 wickets in a match. And so he is delivering for that team. But they pick him, and you can see under McCullum and Stokes, they want him. Under route they didn't.
1: Yeah, it's interesting though because I'll still look at this, and I'm going to probably slightly disagree with you. I'm not a big fan of Jack Leach. I think he's still a weakness in the singlet team. If they want to win the Ashes in England next year, they've got this 18-year-old over there, Rahan Ahmed, who's um, what, what do they describe him as? I think he's what a leg spinner. Is McCullum going to give this guy a test in Pakistan? Is he is he that missing cog? in terms of well, genuine X factor. Look, I'm not saying Leach doesn't tie an end up. I'm not saying Leach doesn't take wickets, but he's sort of, he, he, he's, I don't know, just looking at the way they're playing the game, he seems better suited to the New Zealand sort of environment.
6: Yeah,
4: I, I, don't, think, I don't think Jack Leach is a great chess bowler. You know, he, he's OK. Um, but he's, he's getting he's, he's getting time on the field and he's taking wickets. I actually think when you watch him, at times he lacks a bit of confidence. Um, mm. Uh, but, but you know, the only way he's going to get confidence is to be bold in plays. Um, so, yes, they may play the 18-year-old. I mean, I think Livingston was obviously their first pick for a leg spinner. And I think they would have liked him because he's quite combative. He's played a lot of one-day cricket. But he's out for the season, apparently. So that, that's him gone. Um, I think McCullum, against Australia, would love to have a right arm leg, mm. you know, getting a little mm. bit more turn and a bit of bounce. So, yes, um, yes, I think you would see, you know, he, he, will, he will look... He's always going to look for alternatives, I, I suggest. And uh, while Leach may not be um, you know, the absolute greatest, he's been pretty effective.
1: Mm. Now, they've talked a lot about Ben Stokes' his captaincy, his innovation, his ability to bring bowlers in, his ability not to take the new ball, get the reverse swing out of the old ball, his field settings. How much influence is that of Brendan McCullum and how much of that comes naturally to Ben Stokes?
4: Um, I, it, it's hard to say, and you know, and, and Brendan would never say. So, uh, but, but what I suspect is that in those first few tests against New Zealand when Stokes took over, that uh, McCullum gave him a lot of confidence. And you could see his trademark all over some of those dismissals, and you'll remember that when England uh, took a couple of catches, bowling plans had clearly worked, and they looked up to McCullum in the pavilion at Lords and waved at him. Uh, so, and that was clearly, I thought, uh, an acknowledgement of a plan that he had uh, conceived having been achieved. Uh, you know, now, uh, I mean, I just get the impression that, uh, you know, I don't doubt that McCullum will be leading the charge in terms of saying we're going to win. This is how we're going to play the game, and, he, and Stokes is an acolyte. He's not going to, <laughs> he's not going to defer from that. Uh, but I think, um, I think on the field now, you just see Stokes. You know, I don't doubt at all that he's he's making a lot of those calls. The field placements were excellent last night. You know, he took a great catch at a, a short cover uh, to get rid of a key player at a key time. I think, you know, he chose not to bring the new ball on at the start or not to take the new ball, and he was reverse-swinging it a lot. And, uh, you know, again, I think those are the decisions that folks are likely to be making at the time. And, you know, he's very intuitive. Yeah. He's, he's, But I think it's it's easier for him to take risks because McCullum's always going to back him.
1: Look, you've had a long relationship with Brendan McCullum and I think in his early part of his cricketing career I was pretty critical of him and a whole lot of the New Zealand cricket team. Then we had that series in South Africa and we saw... The, I guess the light go on and Brendan deciding that, hey, enough is enough and it's about leaving a legacy and it's about being the best you can be and, and, and you know, we've got to get rid of this reputation as being prima donnas. But when did Brendan McCullum become the great tactician, the, the, the great visionary in terms of what we saw when, towards the end of his career, captain in New Zealand and clearly the influence he's now having on the England team? Was it always there or did that just come with time and maturity?
4: I think it came with time and maturity because, um, you know, I think while he may have wanted to play the game aggressively uh, at times, and, and, you know, your listeners will be discerning enough to remember that, you know, Brendan frustrated a lot of people with his batting, uh, particularly when he was keeping for New Zealand. I think people felt that uh, they probably could have got a bit more out of him. Um, And then, of course, once he gave up the gloves, his batting became a much more important role for him. And you'll you'll recall, you know, he scored. That triple century and, and three double centuries, so he was able to change his game and 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 mature a lot, and I think it all it all was kind of woven, you know. If you think like a tapestry, it all came together as one piece in a way. Um, but but you know, so I think initially uh, quite brash, very aggressive, uh, but able to counter that with uh, good decision making and maturity as time went on, and no question at all that that. Uh, that time in South Africa was, I think, the formative period in terms of the change of attitude. And you'll recall that Ed Smith, that great writer, and and um, and, uh, and England cricket selector said that uh, when McCullum retired from chess cricket, that he was uh, singularly the the greatest influence on the game since Bradman, which is quite a compliment. Um, And so, so I feel that it all started to weave together really after that, 2013, because he certainly wasn't like that uh, when they went to South Africa and he took over the captaincy, mm. uh, so it came with time and it came with um, you know, he, he had great tools with Bolt and uh, a Saudi again, the same people who have been there for so long, uh, you know and, and he, he could back his players to do things he, he introduced uh, the way that Wagner bowls, the short pitch stuff, some people didn't like it, but it was very effective um, so yeah I, I think it came together over time
1: Mm. Uh, true story, this one, Garth. Um, when Brendan scored that triple hundred and broke Martin Crowe's record and became the first New Zealander to do it, um, I was in, with my wife. She was in labour. Uh, my son was born <laughs> during that innings. I refused oh, to wow. go down that end. I left that up to the midwife, and I stood in one corner listening to Brian Waddle on the radio um, yep. with the specialist, and I don't think my wife was overly <laughs> impressed. True story, no, but, true story, so I, I refuse to, to be anywhere down that end, and I just needed to listen to McCullum score 300, I think he scored it at about 11 o'clock in the morning, and I think my son was probably born either shortly before it or shortly after it, and I'm Did still married, I'm still married, no I didn't call him Brendan, went very very close though. What would you call him? Oh, Jaden, but. I don't know why. I, I, I probably just got told well, what I I, had, I
4: I think um I mean I know your listeners well, I think you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think everybody knows I mean everyone knows where Princess Diana was when she died. I think everyone knows where Brendan McCullum was when they scored three hundred, didn't they?
4: Well, I, I jumped on a plane. I was down in um <laughs> down in Christchurch and jumped on a plane and was lucky enough to be there for that too. But I, I didn't um it was a nervous sort of half hour that, that next day, wasn't it?
1: It was was. I've got to say, for my, you,
4: for many reasons, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: Oh no. It's like, come on, honey. You could have chosen a better day than this. the The irony is that <laughs> uh, my daughter was born the day after the opening game of the Rugby World Cup 2011. So I managed to take my mum to watch the All Blacks Tonga, and then the next day, I was, yeah, I was in labour again. What is it with, yeah? What is it with sport and my kids? Oh. Anyway. Um. Yeah. Hey, look, well, Kath, yeah. lovely to have you on the program. Love the insight. Uh, wonderful radio. Thank you. Oh, it's
4: always nice talking to you, and I hope your listeners get a, a, a small amount of pleasure out of I mean, it is, it's is—it's incredible time, isn't it? And, and I'm loving the World Cup football at the moment. I mean, it's a pity it's in Qatar, but uh, once you get yourself through that... Uh, well, you, you can, know, interesting, inter- a
1: inter- 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 lot of human rights, what, what, and I'm certainly not condoning anything that goes on in Qatar whatsoever. What people don't realise is, and this was pointed out yesterday, when the Football World Cup was held in England in 1966, homosexuality was illegal.
4: Well, it would have been in New
1: Zealand as well. Yeah, so it's just interesting, though, isn't it? Hmm.
4: Yeah, I, yeah, probably. I, I can't imagine that um, six hundred people would have been killed in the making of the stadiums. But you know, I, yeah, uh, you know, immigrants. But um, it's pretty grim over there.
1: as Well, but, I I yeah, I, I, I think I think Brazil make the final, and then I think it's either England or France. France. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think it'll repeat at the repeat of the '98 final.
4: Yep, France to win it. Good on them.
1: Okay, Hey, lovely, Garth. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Cricket commentator Garth Galloway. Telephone number's 0800-150-811 is the number. 0800-150-811. So McCullum and Stokes changing the game. Game changers, And we've seen it a bit in sport over the years, haven't we? People that have come along and changed the game forever. We've seen Tiger Woods in golf. We've seen Michael Jordan in basketball. Everyone plays the Michael Jordan way now. Wayne Gretzky and ice hockey changed that sport forever. I reckon Michael Jones changed the way loose forwards played rugby at a sort of a micro level. But you might have some other situations or scenarios or examples of those generational teams or those generational athletes or those once in a lifetime athletes who come along, write a book that everybody else reads. And for so long, it's always been the one book that everybody reads, and then somebody comes along and changes the game. New Zealand running coach Arthur Lydiard changed the athletics world forever with his coaching style. He based it on his own philosophy, based it on his own experimentation. He said, Look, we've all got basic speed, we can all run 100 metres quickly. How do I maintain that speed for the longest period of time as possible? And that was the initial question that he asked himself. And then he went and said, well, sure, if you're strong, you can hold it for longer. OK, well, I need to build strength. How do I do that? Well, I need to build an aerobic base. Gave the world periodization, And so we are seeing a revolution with McCullum and Stokes. It is high risk, high reward, but they've won seven out of eight tests. Us, on the other hand, we've got conservative Williamson, a pretty conservative coach in Gary stead. I understand the relationship possibly between the two of them might not be that great, and that's just the rumour, Bill. Um, but I'd rather have the Stokes-McCullum approach. We've got to get bums back on seats. No one's watching live sport anymore. No one's watching T20 cricket. No one's watching one-day cricket. McCullum wants to play this way because he wants to keep test cricket alive. He wants it to be entertaining. Did you see the crowd in Pakistan and Ralpindi? It was almost a sellout. It was remarkable. I mean, I, I, I don't really support either team, and I'm sitting there fascinated when I got home. Who's going to win this? Can they get the last wicket with 10 minutes? 0800 150811, you can text us here on 8833. You're listening to SENZ, Mark Watson with you.
7: Had a busy day? Catch up on what you've missed in the world of sport. It's Extra Time on SENZ.
1: A little bit of Nirvana, keeping up that little grunge theme. 28 minutes away from 8 o'clock, you're listening to SENZ. Text that's come in. Uh, you would have heard Garth Galloway and I talking a little bit about maybe the state of Test cricket, and somebody sort of trying to correct us here, saying, hey, this doesn't sound like a very informed conversation. We won the Test Championship very recently, two of our best batsmen in the top four. And then Conway, who else is there? I do, however, agree with the spinners. New Zealand do not produce aggressive spinners. Santner should go. Look, I don't think anyone but we were lucky with that Test cricket championship. Um, COVID prevented some teams from playing, and we were given an opportunity, weren't we? We were sort of we got there, and then we were playing India and England in June. We had a couple of warm-up tests against England. I think we're always going to beat India. Yes, it's a great result, but I think it's a little bit of false of a false economy. Historically, um, we don't have a great legacy in Test cricket. It's been much better in the last 10 years. I do agree with that. But the game's changed. It's gone up another level, and it's been done by Brennan McCullum, and it's been done by Ben Stokes. Stokes, of course, born here in New Zealand, lived here until the age of 12. Father, captain, New Zealand in rugby league. So there's a real New Zealand influence in it. And it'll be interesting to see where the countries follow the way England play, Or they simply say, we'll still play a traditional form of the game, but England have shown us their blueprint. Now we'll find a way of capitalising on the weaknesses that might go with the England approach. But I think wickets these days are a lot more benign. I think wickets are a lot more batting friendly. We've naturally seen... Test side score more runs in a day than what once happened historically. Part of that is because of the wicket. Part of that is also too because of the advent of t Twenty One day cricket players now just play the game a lot quicker. There's a lot more innovation. And so the game has sped up. But it was a fascinating test, just showing that test cricket is still the best form of the game. It's the only form of the game that actually has legacy attached to it where one test can be historic, one test can provide a genuine sense of nationalism for a long time following the result. One day cricket, T20 cricket world, outside of the World Cup, well, it's all a bit meaningless these days, isn't it? There's no jeopardy, it really doesn't mean too much. We've got some audio here from Ben Stokes. Post that victory over Pakistan... It's here from, can I call him a New Zealander? No, that sounds like the Australian's trying to steal everything Kiwi. He's an Englishman, he's captain in England. He's a, I mean, let's be honest, he's a traitor, isn't he? We don't want him as a New Zealander. He'd rather play for England than play for us.
8: Yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy at 40 doing what he's done this whole week. Yeah, um, you know, even bowled with like, that, two overs of bounces bowl bowled last night, and you know, I said to him, rolling back the years there, mate. Um, but it's just, it's incredible the, you know, the, the willingness that everyone has, especially with the ball, to come in and just keep trying different things. Uh, that was my personal opinion on this type of wicket was that we're going to have to try some, some different out there things in terms of our bowling plans, our field placings, because, you know, I felt it was going to be a batter error, really, that was going to open the door for us. Um, and we got a few of those, especially last night with the short ball short ball ploy with the new ball. Um, and, you know, as you said, the great word he said there was, Ollie Robinson's fitness in the past um, didn't show any sign of slowing down today whatsoever on a hot docile draining day. He kept, kept running in and running in and running in and um, I think that everything that's gone on in the past and has been said about him he's he's completely um, well should be written off now because that performance he's put in this week um, is in my opinion was was His best bowling performance for England. Um, Conditions not in his favour, Um, and still managed to to bowl England to victory yet again. In all the Test matches since I've been in charge, but I think in particular, I hope you know it might change the way that it's you know cricket's played in the subcontinent. Um, You know, not only is you know Test cricket almost viewed and and has been viewed in one type of way of playing. You know, um, you know one thing. we actually, I actually mentioned to the group of, of players was that the Australia series, you know, it was said that it was a 15-day test match. Um, I said, no, we're going to take each test match as it comes. You know, we're going to, we're going to play to win every game out here. And, you know, if it comes again, and when we find ourselves in a position on, um, in game two, we'll be doing exactly the same kind of thing. Um, it's not always going to work. It's not always going to go your way, but, um, if you're, if you're brave enough and and willing enough to to go out and play in that way, if you lose a game, it's going to be entertaining. Um, You know, and that's personally how I think test cricket should should be played is always looking at the entertainment side of the sport because, you know, test cricket is is something that needs needs to be looked after. It's the the pinnacle of cricket. It's, It's the one that everybody wants to play. And if we can make a little indentation into other teams, ways of playing the game. I think that's just only gonna do chess cricket, the world of good, um, because we don't, want it, we don't want it falling off the, of the planet. It's, it needs to stay around and we'll do everything we possibly can as a team to keep it alive.
1: Ben Stokes there, yep, change the game. Can we influence the rest of the world? Well, if they keep winning, the rest of the world are gonna to have to play catch up. They're gonna to have to play it that way, but they're also showing, hey, it can be done. Why do we clam up and we put the white clothing on the red ball? Why do we play with so much freedom with the T20 and the one-day stuff? It's a fascinating next 18 months for England. I think they've still got to find a world-class spinner. I don't think they've got that at the moment. Jack Leach, uh, I think is a bit of a Mitchell Santner. I think he ties up an end, but I don't think he's going to bowl through a side. And I think to beat Australia in the Ashes next year, they're going to need to have a spinner who can bowl a side out if required. Nathan Lyon has demonstrated that he has that ability with more than 400 test wickets. But because of the way England are playing, can you imagine the anticipation around next year's Ashes? Meanwhile, the anticipation around the New Zealand cricket team... (laughs) Oh, sorry, wake me up, wake me up. Oh, I was watching the New Zealand cricket team, sorry. Um, yeah, I uh, love the way they're playing. Hard not to like it. I mean, sport, you know, you want an outcome, don't you? I mean, they say that addiction with gambling is from the moment you place the bet to the outcome. It's that ride in between, that's that uncertainty. And as they said, it's not always going to come off, but they're going to go down fighting these guys. And they know you know, as the opposition, they're going to come after you. They ain't going to give you an inch. And if you're smart enough and you've got fortitude and you can work through that, you'll probably end up beating England on the odd occasion. But they're going to become a very popular side. They're going to fill up stadiums. Legends are going to be made. Great performances are going to go down in history. And these guys, in 10, 20, 30 years from now, will be considered to be game changers, innovators. And I think that's a pretty cool legacy to leave. It's one of the great frustrations with me in this country is that historically we were that in a lot of sports, the great innovators. Then the rest of the world caught up. But it seems to me now that sort of Shelby will right attitude that Hillary, when he conquered Mount Everest, and I said, I knocked the bastard off. That sort of seems to have left a lot of New Zealand sport. It's like we've got sports scientists, we've got too many people involved now. We've got too many PowerPoint presentations and we've almost just lost a little bit of that Kiwi innovation. You can't rely on it purely. You've got to tap into the resources that the rest of the world tap into. But you never, ever, ever want to lose that. But I sort of feel that we have. You know, write the book everybody else reads. That should be the mentality. That should be the philosophy. 19 minutes away from 8, you're listening to SENZ. Mark Watson with you. Telephone numbers 0800 150 811.
7: Had a busy day? Catch up on what you've missed in the world of sport. It's Extra Time on SENZ.
1: 15 minutes away from 8 o'clock, you are listening to SENZ. Isaac Peach. Boxing coach will be on the program after 8 o'clock. He's had great success recently with a number of New Zealand fighters. And Might not be, be aware of this, but Kiwi boxer David Light. He's earned himself a world title fight after a dramatic split decision win in Florida last Saturday. Now, the 31-year-old Auckland Cruiserweight upset American Brandon Glanton at the White Sands Event Centre near Tampa to secure a mandatory challenge against England's Lawrence Oco- uh, Ocoley. Um So we're going to have a chat. About David Light, we're going to have a chat to Isaac about his coaching philosophy, how he sort of got into it. And also Northland boxer Miyamoto, now one of New Zealand's finest female fighters. She won her first international boxing title in Dubai a couple of weeks ago. So we're going to um, chat to Isaac, talk some boxing after 8 o'clock tonight. Looking forward to that as well. Uh, We're also going to talk a little bit of um, NBA. We're going to talk some Australian rugby on the programme. And then after 10 o'clock, hopefully we're going to catch up with Martin Cross and talk about Mahe Drysdale. Now, Mahe Drysdale has won the Thomas Callagher medal, uh, one of the great prestigious things that you can be awarded by international rowing. Remarkable career, two-time Olympic champion, bronze medalist as well, multiple world champion. So what does this mean? What does the medal mean? How much prestige goes with this? Martin Cross, the international voice, former Olympic rowing gold medalist himself, hopefully have him on the programme after 10 o'clock to celebrate one of New Zealand's greatest ever athletes in Mahe Drysdale. We'll take another break. We'll come back with more shortly. Is there a better guitar solo opener than rock music? Sweet child of mine, some good ones. Some good ones, Thunder from ACDC. It's good Led Zeppelin numbers. In terms of innovation, just a really different sound. Very hypnotic. Sweet child of mine, we'll be in Wellington Thursday night. Looking forward to watching Guns N' Roses. Actually just really interested to see how the fun police, what they're like down there. Remember they shut down the Wellington Sevens. Sevens is gone by the way, we talked about that last night. Yeah, you know, being morally policed by everybody else. You know, the minority? Oh, that's right. The minority these days is the silent majority, isn't it? Anyway, those same people that want to legislate hate speech. But they're the ones that are going to determine what is hate speech. Uh, right, I digress. I digress. Um, I've just seen here um, something that's been sent out on Twitter through SENZ, and it says, do the New Zealand rugby and the All Blacks put too much emphasis on the Rugby World Cup? I'm not sure why we're having that conversation now, because of course we are. Of course they do. That's the problem of the game in this country. Way too much emphasis on the Rugby World Cup. And so at 8.30 tonight, we're going to catch up with Christy Doran, a journalist out of Australia, because there's rumours that Dave Rooney might not survive as the Wallabies coach, which would be stupid, I think, in the case of... Rennie, seven months out from the World Cup to get rid of him. But Wales have been ruthless, as you will be very aware of, in terms of getting rid of Wayne Pivak. And they're going to get rid of England, they're going to get rid of Eddie Jones, which, as I said last night, just proves the point that you don't need four years to build up for a World Cup. In fact, really, you shouldn't be thinking about the World Cup until World Cup year. And it's been too much of an excuse for all black coaches when performances have been poor in the past. To simply go, oh, look, we're experimenting, we're trying some things, judge us on the World Cup. Well, we've done that too often. There's never been really any consequences when they failed winning the World Cup. And all it's done is actually damage the winning record and damage perhaps the brand of the All Blacks in between. So, do the All Blacks put too much emphasis on rugby? Uh, all Black coaches, absolutely they do. And as you've heard me say a thousand million times on this station, it's killed club rugby. It's killed my 10 Cup and it's slowly eroding and killing super rugby. All because we've got to wrap our players in cotton Well, we can't have them doing anything too hard because we've got a Rugby World Cup. It's ridiculous. It's moronic. It doesn't work. And it goes back to my point earlier about we've lost our own natural intuition. We've lost our she'll be right attitude and knock the bastard off mentality. It's been replaced by PowerPoint presentations Academics with degrees on the wall. Sports science, which will have you believe that everybody's the same. Telephone number's 0800 150 811 is the number. Have we got time to take that caller? No, we don't. Okay, we'll take a break. Have I? Do I need to take another break? I've got, I'm in a different studio tonight. Oh, there we go. Okay, we'll we'll get them to phone back after 8. We'll get them to phone back between 8 and 9. Sorry, I'm just in a different studio tonight, so uh, I don't have everything in front of me, so I'm sort of relying a little bit more on um, direct communication with my producer. Anyway... Just after 8 o'clock, you listen to SENZ. The telephone number is 0800 150 811 zane You tried to call before 8 o'clock. We will try and get you in in around about 10 or 15 minutes' time. We're going to also head to Australia around about 8.30 and look at the possible coaching change that might happen in the Wallabies. Will Dave Rennie get replaced as Wallabies coach before the World Cup? Will they follow what England and Wales have done? Before we do any of that, though, I want to talk some boxing because it's been a very good couple of weeks for New Zealand boxers, Kiwi boxer David Light. Well, he's earned himself a world title fight after a dramatic split decision win in Florida on Saturday. The 31-year-old Auckland cruiserweight upset American Brandon Glanton at the White Sands Event Centre near Tampa to secure a mandatory challenge against England's Lawrence um, Okoli. Uh, also, New Zealand's leading female boxer Miyamoto, she won her first international title, winning the WBC Asia Super Bantamweight title in Dubai. The coach of these two remarkable athletes now joins us on the program, Isaac Peach. Isaac, good evening. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, man. How you going? Yeah, very well, thank you. Oh, Isaac, look, just, just for our listeners, give us a little bit of your background. I understand you, you're a fighter yourself, and now you've pretty much established yourself as New Zealand's leading boxing trainer. How did that all come around?
9: Yeah, I was was a fighter I suppose for about 15 years and we've had the gym since 2013 and yes, we're
1: doing all right. And and that's based out in West Auckland, is it? That's out in Henderson Valley, yeah, West Auckland. Oh brilliant, used to run out there, Henderson Valley Road, great run. Um, Okay, so in terms of, so so was it just a natural progression to get into coaching and when did you maybe start to realise that you were quite good at this?
9: Oh, it just all evolved, man, to be honest, and none of it was planned, and, yeah, it's just turned out how it is, to be honest. There was no, wasn't sort of some dying passion I wanted or anything, it just, yeah.
1: And I understand you've got it's a, I understand you've got a pretty good stable of fighters as well.
9: Yeah, no, we have, we've got a real, a real good stable at the moment, it's really, it's quite strong, yeah.
1: So, is it a game where success breeds success, you're successful, so more fighters come knocking on your door?
9: Yeah, definitely. I think um, I mean I'm lucky. There's some really good fighters, and when you've got more than one fighter, they're pushing each other, and that so it kind of helps other fighters. So if a fighter comes to me in the in this environment, it definitely helps progress them quick. Mm.
8: Um,
1: Northern boxer Miyamoto, um, how big has women's boxing become?
9: uh yeah, women's boxing's, really quite popular in LA eh? uh, there was a time where no one cared about it but it's definitely starting to become really popular
1: uh, and I mean
9: hopefully she's going to push it here she's going really well
1: yeah what makes her what gives her that x-factor what makes her special oh she can punch man she's like a she
9: punches like a bloke <laughs> she, she can really fight um there's none of this like girl happy stuff with me as she walks forward and she hits she hurts people
1: <laughs> Does she hurt a few of the guys? Yeah. Does she spar with the guys?
9: Yeah. Uh, smaller guys, yep. No, yeah. We don't have a lot of girls that will spar her, so we definitely chuck guys in with her.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, how long she been in the game? I, I, I mentioned she comes from Northland. How long has she been boxing?
9: I've been a box for quite a while when she was young, and she went away for it for about eight or nine years. And she's been back for about two and a half years of me. And, um, yeah, she's knocking on the Knocking on the door for a world title at the moment.
1: Yeah, winning this WBC Asia Super Bantamweight title, how big is that in terms of that next step, in terms of getting that world title fight?
9: Yeah, no, it's big, man. It was, I mean, it was a big effort. She went to Dubai. Um, time difference was terrible. It was like fighting at 5 in the morning here. Yeah. Um, and the 8 was terrible. And she managed to win, so that was cool. Um, so she, she's right there for that. We're just waiting on the get opportunity, really. We're crossing our fingers that the phone's going to ring and get that chance.
1: Yeah, how, how deep internationally is the super bantamweight division amongst women?
9: It's pretty deep. We, we had an offer not so long ago to fight for the world title and they actually changed their mind. <laughs> we, we got it sorted and they saw sort of how good Mia was and they took, changed their mind and said they wanted more time to prep, but yeah, now they yeah. don't want to fight. Yeah. So.
1: And is she starting to establish that reputation internationally? Are people starting to sort of fear her or starting to realise that, in fact, she is the real deal?
9: Yeah, definitely. But just look, Mia will get her shot, and I don't think it'll be far away.
1: Because mm. what is she, 33 years of age, I think I read somewhere. Yeah,
9: she's 32, yeah. But and, well, look, wo- wo- woman, I-, I think women um, go late. I think women are strong between 30 and 40, to be honest.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and she clearly has that dream of be wanting to become world champion.
9: Yeah, I mean, 100%. That's her only dream.
1: That is the dream. Yeah, yeah. And So, so is she full-time? Is she, is she a professional fighter? Does she make a living doing this?
9: Yeah, I mean, make a living. The money's not amazing, but, um, yeah, that, that's what she does. Yeah.
1: yeah,
3: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So so for someone like Miyamoto, how long do you go into, so prior to leading up to this uh, Asia Super weight title fight, how many weeks does she go into camp? Is it the same as the men? Is it a six-week, eight-week camp? Yeah. No,
9: we did play for the eight. Yeah. Eight weeks. I usually try and do a week around. So if they got a 10-rounder, they'll do 10 weeks. If they've got an eight-rounder, they'll do eight weeks. Kind of, I mean, they're always in the gyms, but I'll just focus that amount of time on them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. And where do you – I mean, clearly you've gained knowledge yourself through being coach, through being a fighter, but do you draw inspiration from anyone? Do you have anybody that, I guess, coaches you as a coach that you look up to or that offers you some advice at times?
9: Are people that offer me advice not so much coaches. Um, I mean, I watch a lot of boxing. and You kind of learn from your mistakes and just being in the game for a certain amount of time. You kind of yeah. I'm not a big on trying to pick stuff up. I try and try and work stuff out myself. To be honest, I've got my own sort of stuff.
1: Uh, we've just been talking about that. We like that. We like the sort of that old Kiwi attitude of she'll be right. That sort of you know, yeah. Read the write a book. Everybody else ends up reading rather than just always looking next door and see what everyone else is doing. Uh, so, in terms of Mia, does she provide a lot of feedback? Do you guys work together? Um, in terms of the way you prepare, does she give you that feedback?
9: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she does a lot of work with my wife, so my wife, um, my wife trains me as well. So they probably, she, she probably does more with my wife than she does with me. Um, they're always communicating with me, but I kind of leave my missus to a little bit, to be honest with you.
1: Okay, um, right. Let's uh, talk about uh, another remarkable fighter who seems to have gone underneath the radar here a little bit, but sounds to me like he's in line for a, a shot at the WBO um world championship and the cruiserweight and this is David Light. Tell us a little bit about David Light. Where's he from? What's his background?
9: Um David's I mean David's been a good amateur fighter for a lot of years. He won a silver medal in the two thousand and fourteen Glasgow Commonwealth Games. Yep. Um and yeah he went away for a few years. I, I boxed with him actually as my stable mate and I kind of grabbed him back, turned him pro. And um, it's just the yeah, same thing, it's just eventuated, he's just been fighting, and now we've climbed up the ranks, and we just had an eliminator in the weekend, which he won, so now he's, they've actually just given us the letter, so it's all on for the world title.
1: And when will that happen?
9: Probably March, April. Yeah. So basically they give it 20 days to make a, an agreement with the other team, and once that agreement's made, three, it's got to happen inside 90 days
1: Yeah. And that's the, how do you say it? Lawrence O'Coley is it? Lawrence O'Colly, yeah. Yeah, and that fight would then end up happening in England, will it?
9: Well, not 100%. I'd love it to be down here in New Zealand or Australia, um, but probably 60 or 70% chance it'll be in England.
1: Mm-hmm. So when we look at David, like what type of fighter is he? Does he rely, Does he have a big punch? Is he a more technical fighter? What, what's, what's his natural sort of plumbing?
9: David can do a bit of everything, to be honest. Um, I think that's his strength. David's strength, he can adapt. And can, he can fight if he needs to fight. He can box if he needs to box. And I think um, I think that is his actual strength, is that he is adaptable to whatever he needs to do. And mm-hmm. oh, that in his last fight.
1: Yeah, and so yeah. How, how much improvement um, since 2014 to where he is now? And, and what have been those work-ons? What are those areas that you've had to address to get him into sort of, I guess, world title contention?
9: Oh, there's no comparison, man, he's a completely different fighter. Um, the guy was in two thousand and fourteen and the guy he is now is you wouldn't even know the same guy. Mm. To compare it. Um it's just but look it's just old fashioned hard work. Getting the basics. Everything we do is about the basics, man. Yeah. yeah. There's just hard work and basics, that's the key to it.
1: Yeah, and, and a lot of fitness, tough, tough sport, a lot of fitness. Uh, I, I uh, experimented once with it, and boy, I was breathing through my eyelids after about two minutes just trying to get the oxygen, and um, for some reason you get into a ring and you stop breathing. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is. I've got so much admiration for boxers. Tough game. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and what? And, and, okay, so are you realistic? Do you think that David's got a real shot? Do you think he can cause a bit of an upset and win this Cruiserweight title?
9: Absolutely, man. Wouldn't be. Oh, I look. Oh, I wouldn't go if I didn't think we're going to win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. We're going to win. It, I'm not thinking we've got a chance. We're going to win. Yeah. And what, is, what does
1: is, what does Lawrence O'Coley bring? What 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 type of fight is he? What what's allowed him to become world champion?
9: As well, we fought in the division which is the cruiserweight division, which is 90 kilos. And yep. um, Lawrence O'Coly's six foot six, six foot seven. Wow. huge. Yeah, big He's reach. Extremely eh? tall. So that's a that's his strength. He can whack and he's he's really, really tall. But um we're good with tall guys and, and look, maybe he's gonna win this fight, mm. I've no doubt. So, and no one thought we we're gonna win in the weekend. Yeah. Except for us. And so, we just
1: So so where do you find a six foot six sparring partner?
9: Which will be blank.
1: <laughs>
9: like we, we're 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 okay. Yeah. We'll find sparring. We we don't um we're not these guys that need to be shopping all over the world to find the perfect sparring partners. We'll just use what we can and um, yeah, work hard and get the job done.
1: Yeah, I, I, that must be pretty tough coming up against a guy that tall. So what does that mean? You have to sort of fight that fighter on the inside, do you, when you come up against somebody that tall?
9: Yeah, you've got to find a way in there. Be patient. And when when you get your chances, you need to take them, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. and in regards to the rest of your stable what other sort of fighters have you got coming through who are some of the other fighters that are in your camp
9: I've got uh, Andre Michalovic he's number he, number 12 in the world at the moment Jerome um, Pamperlain he's just come in the top 15 so he's number 15 in the world I've got Kiki Latelli, who just had a massive fight which he didn't quite win but it was a big statement fight in Aussie the other week um, Aaron Walsh who just went to the Commonwealth Games
1: yeah. and, and you mentioned your wife does some coaching uh, do you have a stable of coaches underneath you or guys that work alongside you
9: yes I've got my wife I've got my brother my brother's heavily involved with coaching yeah. um, I've got Seth Tully he helps as well mm.
1: See now I, I say this with a smile on my face this is tongue in cheek but is it like football if the fighter loses they sack the sack the coach
9: yeah, uh, we haven't lost, I do yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and, and,
1: and Isaac, are you living your dream?
9: Uh, I'm still plumbing. I still run a plumbing bus- uh, business at the moment. So it's still not full time for me, but hopefully in the near future it will be.
1: Oh, um,
9: but yeah, I am living my dream.
1: Oh, good on you. Hey, look, lovely to have you on the programme. Congratulations with the success that you've had with Mia and David and clearly some of your other fighters within that stable.
9: Uh, thanks, man. Appreciate you having me on.
1: There, there you go. Arguably New Zealand's one of New Zealand's best boxing trainers, if not New Zealand's current best boxing trainer in um, Isaac Peach, doing a great job. Write the name down if you haven't heard it, David Light. This guy's going to get a shot at the WBO Cruiserweight World Championship. You heard it here, against Lawrence... Colley this is set for March this is mandatory this is going to happen Miyamoto out of the north north uh, out of Northland 33 years of age could end up winning a world title on the women's side of boxing it's amazing how little coverage it gets here isn't it it goes back to my the prejudice in the media towards blue-collar sports you would have heard me go last week about how many rugby league players have ever been knighted how many softball players have ever been knighted we've won seven world championships but no one's been knighted yet rugby netball cricket all those Queen's honours are handed out we've got a media that continually tell us about equity Who tell us that women's rugby players should get paid the same as the men ignoring the economics around it yet they don't practice what they preach they don't give these sports the coverage because of prejudice, but also because they don't think there's the readership in it, and therefore it doesn't equate to advertising. So what they're basically saying is we're not giving it coverage for commercial reasons, which is the whole argument about why there shouldn't be pay parity in some sports between men and women, because it's how much money you bring in. Um, but look, David Light, outstanding talent. Miyamoto, she won her first world international title. It's going to be an exciting 12 months when it comes to boxing, when it comes to combat sports in this country. And it's time the media woke up here, started giving it the coverage that it deserves and start evolving. Sport is no longer rugby, rugby league, netball and cricket. In fact, I think if you look at the television ratings, you look at the people watching those sports, I think you'll find all of them are in a level of decline a lot of other sports which we deem to be minority sports here which are actually truly global sports are being ignored and it's to the detriment of those media organisations 16 minutes after 8 if you want to comment on that 0800 150 811 Zane if you're listening we're happy to take your call from earlier but yeah, I'd like to hear from the boxing fraternity. How cool is this? Miyamoto and David Light. Now, I think Stephen McIver on Sunday afternoon is going to have David Light on the program, so looking forward to that interview as well. In Texas here on double
7: We'll take a break. you listen to SENZ.
1: Twenty-one minutes after eight, you're listening to SENZ. Very shortly, we will head to Australia. We are going to talk some Australian rugby. I'm always hesitant to talk rugby this time of the year. I think there's far too much of it. I think the game's in decline. I'm not sure the interest is there. However, there is discussion around possibility that Dave Rennie could end up getting axed at some point. Do they do it before the World Cup? Do they allow him to go through to the World Cup? Wales have been ruthless. Wayne Pivak gone. Warren Gatlin back, Eddie Jones is about to go and there's a number of English names that have been discussed as terms of a possible replacement. I admire both England and Wales for the courage and the guts to sack their coach, not buy into this rhetoric that you need to be planning four years out for a World Cup, realising that, in fact, they probably can't win the World Cup unless they make the change, something that we have failed to do because we've got arguably probably the worst rugby administration in the history of the game currently in place. Just box ticking. Woke BS. That's just my opinion. So we will have Christy Doran on the programme very, very shortly. Now... Um, Niv is producing, no Ben Francis at the moment Niv is from Kerry Kerry He always wears a Liverpool shirt He's a very intelligent man, he's had a girlfriend for nine years And we're going to bring him into the programme G'day Niv, how are you?
10: G'day Watto, I'm great, thanks. Still you. struggling
1: with that girlfriend for nine years mate
10: Yeah, yeah, she's giving me a lot of trouble what's your, what's your best piece of advice for me?
1: Um, oh, you probably wouldn't like it
10: uh, <laughs> Is it going to be leave her?
1: I wouldn't say that. Come on. I wouldn't dare say that. That's not Just like say yes. Just say yes all the time. Come on. <laughs> what advice can I give you? Well, I no, I've got to be careful. Look, I'm only saying this as a joke, tongue in cheek, please. Nobody take this seriously at all. But I always wanted to become a mind reader as a kid, a commentator and a mind reader. I ended up becoming a commentator and I got married and I became a mind reader. There you go. That's all I'll say. Hey, um, football, Brazil, how good would they look? Are they the team to beat now? I mean, they're going to play Croatia in a quarterfinal. They go through to the semifinals. I think they made a statement today.
10: Yes, huge statement. Look, I always think coming into this tournament, they were the team to beat. They've got an embarrassment of riches off the bench. They, I think they've always played with flair. That's what we know about Brazil, but... This tournament in particular, they've they've really shown resilience against Serbia in particular. When they couldn't break them down, they scored two goals late in the piece, and uh, they've kept a lot of clean sheets, um, bar today, um, but it was a statement when They were in cruise control in that second half.
1: Yeah, oh, look, teams, and you're always going to see a momentum shift at some point. I mean, Korea are a really, really good side, mm. uh, as is Japan. Um, I mean, a lot of people talking England up. I still think France will get past England.
10: Yeah, me too. Um I realistically don't see many ways in which Harry Maguire um, and John Stones and co. can contain the pace of Kylian Mbappe, Dembele, um, with Griezmann spraying passes in behind. Uh, it's very difficult for me to
1: see. Mm, mm. Now, we do have those highlights. We will bring those to you a little bit later on in the programme. So, what tomorrow, we've still got a couple more quarterfinals to look forward to. Or not quarterfinals, I should say... Is it, it's almost the fourth round, isn't it? That's what you'd say in tennis. Fourth rounds, then you go into the quarterfinal. The round of sixteen. So we've got Portugal taking on. We've got. We've got no. We've got Spain taking on Morocco. And we've got Portugal taking on. Who've we got Portugal taking on? I'm having a mind block. Oh, okay, we've got we've got someone funny through the program. Let me just have a let me just have a little look here. Who is Portugal playing tomorrow? FIFA. World Cup, I'm sorry, I just don't have um, stuff in front of me. We're in a slightly different studio. Okay, so we've got Morocco, Spain, we've got Portugal, Switzerland. Of course we have, we've got Portugal, Switzerland. Tough game, that one. I wouldn't be surprised, would not be surprised if, if Switzerland caused the upset. Wouldn't surprise me at all. There is going to be an upset in this round of 16. It hasn't happened yet. Will it happen tomorrow? Will Morocco beat Spain? I think one of those games is going to go against the common perception that Spain and Portugal go through. Uh, Nick, good evening. Welcome.
11: Here you go, mate. No, I'd imagine Spain and Portugal should go through. I wouldn't imagine there should be too much big upset. Hey, back to David Light. Good fight last week, or you know, in the weekend. He's uh, going to have to fight a good fight to win the title, though.
1: Yeah, but I mean, you, you know, the nice thing is he's got the opportunity. He's got the opportunity. He's got he's got a place at the table, hasn't
11: 100%. he? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, now it's good. Hey, now, like you said earlier, I've only sort of got in the last sort of ten fifteen, but applaud. You know, you're saying you applaud the Wales and the English Union for second the coaches. A hundred percent. Yeah. Where do you think we're going to go now? Oh, we, we, With Warren coming out and saying, as we but there, which was, that was, I mean, to be honest, that was very surprising that Warren has come out and said that against his own sort of oh. Chiefs teammate, you know, lost his the Chiefs. It was very surprising.
1: Oh, look, I don't think Warren Gatland has a lot of time for New Zealand rugby. I don't think he has a lot of time for New Zealand rugby. He, um... You know, I think he's another one that's never really fitted in here. And I think his coaching style best suits the northern hemisphere. He wants the big bopping forwards. 100%. He wants that at the yeah. breakdown. I think he was you know, when he came back here and took over the Chiefs and the way Super Rugby's played, he, the Chiefs were pretty average under him, weren't they? And that's just because they were. that's not his yes. that's not his style. But it's nice that he's sort of endorsing Scott Robertson. Uh, but oh, yeah. the, the, I, I think the message in all of this is for me is that you you know stop overthinking the rugby world cup stop thinking that you need to be planning 3 4 years out because the problem with all of that is you reduce rugby to once every 4 years and that's not and then it's a risk anyway and I'm just not sure that the game can survive with that level of with that mentality uh, as i said you know you go back to 2018 uh, 2017 september i think it was south africa beaten 57 nil here 2 years later they win the rugby world cup
11: yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I'll, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they go. I mean, I, I don't think the Palms will sign Rob Robinson. I think they'll they'll stay in house. I think, in England, hopefully, for us.
1: Yeah, well, I wonder whether Scott Robertson has declined any invitation. I wonder whether he might have been given the heads up, no matter what, you are the next All Black coach, this will happen after the World Cup. And I just wonder, because look, I think that's only fair. We can't keep just keeping guys in limbo Let's be honest, he's been in charge of the Crusaders what, for five, six, seven years now. He's won it all there. He needs the next challenge. Yeah. There's big money overseas. He needs to keep evolving. And one of the biggest mistakes we've made is that we've let too many of our good coaches go because we haven't been decisive enough in terms of providing them a pathway. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe you're
11: good coaches. I mean, Renee hasn't done a lot over there, but... Well, it's, D- it's, D- Dave Rennie. it's hard to... Bring. But, but it's hard to make honey out of dogship too, as well.
1: Yeah, well, I agree. You can't turn a donkey into a thoroughbred. But I think what Dave Rennie's criticism has been is that he chops and changes his starting lineups too much. But I think he's also in that predicament where he's going, Well, look, we've got to build some depth. One thing Australian rugby doesn't have is depth. We've got to create That's that right. depth. And so what he's trying to do yeah, is, is create depth. Unfortunately, the byproduct of that is you're going to lose some tests along the way and you're not going to get that continuity. I think Australia got a really good chance of winning the Rugby World Cup. So I think they've got a really good chance of getting through to the final if you look at the draw and you look at the way it is actually set up. I mm. know oh, It's
11: going to be a good. Year. It's going to be interesting. Mm. interesting. I think we're building nicely. Just, we'll, just, we'll see. We'll
1: see. see yeah, uh, look, uh, Nick, I, I, I've got to move on, but I, I'm going to say on that one, I, I, I disagree. I, I think we'll go out in the quarterfinals. I think we'll get either beaten by Ireland or yeah, South yeah. Africa. Yep. And, good on you. Thanks, yeah, and, and it didn't need to happen. Hey, lovely. Thanks. Don't be a stranger to the programme greatly appreciate on top. it. We'll take a break 8.30 here on SENZ um, when we come back we will talk to Christy Doran out of Australia
7: Had a busy day? Catch up on what you've missed in the world of sport It's Extra Time on SENZ
1: A little bit of um, Kiss as we do count down to Guns N' Roses. Heading down to Wellington, looking forward to that Thursday night. What's their general introduction? You wanted the best. or oh, they couldn't make it. In reference to Kiss. And then, of course, you get Guns N' Roses. I'm happy with Guns N' Roses, to be perfectly honest. Just come off a big tour there of Australia. Had a look through the set list, the playlist. Pretty happy with what they're doing. Just a photo album, really, of the last 30 years for me. Looking forward to just taking it all in. Anyway, you are listening to SENZ. We are talking sport, not music. Christy Doran, who is a Fox Sport, a Fox Sports Australian Rugby journalist, now joins us on the program because will the Wallabies follow in the footsteps of Wales, England, and sack their coach, sack Dave Rennie? Christy, good evening. Welcome.
0: Yeah, good evening. The oh, First thing I've got to do is probably just correct you. I've joined the Raw just in the last month, but um, good to join you on your program and. To answer your your question, are they going to follow the the lead of the Rugby Football Union um, as well as as the Welsh Rugby Union? I I don't think so. I don't think it's got to that point yet. I know that there was huge concern following the defeat to Italy and there was lots of talk and concern from the Rugby Australia board. Um, That was tempered in the weeks to come. Uh, They probably got away out of jail. I think Dave Rennie got out of jail when the Wallabies pulled off an incredible 21-point come-from-behind victory over mm. Wales. So that perhaps just saved him there, I'd say.
1: Yeah, It's an interesting one, Australian rugby, isn't it? Because Dave Rennie, I guess the one thing that the Wallabies have probably lacked in recent times is depth and numbers and key positions. And he's clearly trying to build that depth. Uh, the criticism is, though, that there's not a lot of continuity in his selections. His argument is, yeah, but I've got to try and build depth. I've got to try and create some competition for places. So he's almost in a no-win situation. What's your take on that? What's the right way?
0: I've been pretty critical of Dave Rennie's selection, particularly over the last 12 months. Um, You can talk about depth. I think from the outside, it seems like there's probably less depth than what there perhaps is. You you think about it, um, clearly there's been injuries and there's been injuries that have hit hard in certain positions. And perhaps you look at Quade Cooper, the fact that he only played a matter of about 47 minutes this year. Um, but you look at the handling of a player like Noah Lolisio. He's been in and out, in and out, in and out. Now, you either rate the bloke or you don't, or you select the guy and you give him a long stretch or you don't. But the reality is um, he's continually turned away from him. He's continually made changes at fullback. He admitted... Uh, in his final um, team announcement on the Thursday leading up to the test against Wales in Cardiff, that he didn't know who his preferred full-back was. Uh, He rotated at nine, wasn't sure about who his options were, and he said that we've got world-class depth there at nine throughout the year, and he didn't lose any of them to injury. So I do question that. I I don't subscribe to the theory that there's not enough depth in there. I think Dave Rennie's biggest issue... With the Wallabies in 2022 was uh, his selection, uh, but it was also followed probably pretty closely by what's happening from a strength and conditioning program. Why are all these players breaking down, and were players rushed back from injury at time?
1: So it's it's not just Dave Rennie. It's it's uh, yeah, it, it's that tier of support staff below. Um, who's ultimately responsible for that, though?
0: Well, that's something that they're gonna. Um, you'd like to think have some answers over the next month or two they've got an independent review that's shortly about to start um, where that comes out um, I'm not quite sure yet but oh, look, I think it's a combination of things and sometimes there is a bit of uh, unfortunate kind of events you look at some of the concussions that are going on in games that doesn't come down to Dave Rennie and his training methods but you think about it there's been four Achilles injuries four ruptured Achilles. Now, three of those four were coming back from calf injuries. Um, guys like Quade Cooper previously were managing themselves and had their own, uh, very much their own programs. Um, three out of four of them have calf injuries and then they end up rupturing their Achilles in the not-so-distant future after that. That that points to something going wrong there. Um, some have complained of too much running. Um, another guy like... Uh, uh, a Rob Leota does his Achilles against the All Blacks in Melbourne, yet um, he did have a, uh, an injury mishap throughout the week leading up to that, was declared fit, uh, ends up having a ruptured Achilles. All these kind of innocuous, but at the same time, they point to a consistent theme that things not going right. Mm-hmm.
1: OK, if there is to be a coaching change, who are some of the names that have been bandied around, and is there depth in Australian rugby in regards to an Australian coach taking this team forward?
0: Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, But perhaps more of pressing, is there going to be a coaching change, a head coaching change? I don't necessarily think there will be. Um, Will there be come 2024? I think that's, uh, unless Dave Rennie somehow wins the World Cup, even if he does that, they might have already put someone in charge at that point in time. Um, And Dave has already indicated, and he indicated that, two or three months ago that if, if he doesn't really know by you know, the, the first quarter of the year, he's going to have to start to look elsewhere. And clearly that's why they have agents and other bad people to suss out those sorts of options. Um, are there Australian candidates? Well, Dan McKellar has been, you know, and I hate the idea of anointing heir apparents because Michael Checker anointed Stephen Larkin as his heir apparent and 12 months later, he uh, he punted him as as his own assistant coach. So, we know that that doesn't work. I think that New Zealand rugby, if they had their time again, would have they made, made you know,
9: Ian
0: Foster uh, their coach? It's, it's quite debatable and perhaps not. Um, I think McKellar is, is someone who's clearly he's got some reasonable runs on the board. He hasn't had international coaching experience, but he's, he's had five years at the Brumbies and he's now got a year and a half at the Wallabies. We'll see and there'll be some you know, mm. measurables, I think, over the next 12 months. Stephen Larkin's only return will be interesting now coming back with the Brumbies. Uh, I don't think the reviews coming out of Munster where he was previously would particularly flash hot, but even speaking to the man, I think he's changed his own tone, his own perception with how he sees the game, but also how he interacts with people like the media, which often have, and let's be honest, they, they have some form of impact with, mm. um, you know, with, with the amount of promotion that goes into the game and selling the game. You've got to have, interaction um, with the media, whether or not you like them or not. Um, he, he's another one. Look, Eddie Jones, if he gets sacked, you've he, got to admit that he, he's a, a guy with a wealth of experience. There's probably a redemption story, an element to it. Uh, the idea of coaching against the Lions, we know that that was Rod McQueen's last um, last stint with the Wallabies in, in 2001 before, before Eddie Jones took over. So, um, there's that element, that piece of the puzzle. And also, you know, what about it if, you know, we know that Australia's hosting the World Cup in twenty seven, Eddie Jones was the last to coach in 2003, the home World Cup famously, losing to Clive Woodward's side in in extra time there to, to a Johnny Wilkinson field goal. So I think they're probably the favourites. You'd imagine that Scott Robertson is going to be snapped up by New Zealand. We we all heard Warren Gatlin's comments this morning, at a particular point, and, and, and it was... a. Uh, it was not refreshing. I think it was refreshing to hear a coach, who's a New Zealand coach, who's widely respected, a Lions, the, you know, the three-time Lions coach, come out and say you're bonkers if you don't go out and sign this guy. Yes, it puts Ian Foster in a slightly awkward position, but he would have been at the All Blacks hmm. by then for 12 years, so there's no way he's going to continue. You would think. It's um, fascinating what's going on though you know, the real domino effect across the international landscape when it comes to international coaches.
1: Yeah, no, it is remarkable. But it's interesting, is it, because you mentioned Michael Checker there. Well, he wasn't particularly successful with the Wallabies. He's doing some quite good things with Argentina. We had Robbie Deans. He wasn't particularly successful. Now David Rennie's sort of coming under uh, the blowtorch a little bit. I mean, surely the problem's more around the infrastructure and the quality of player that's actually been developed and coming out of Australia. You just haven't had depth for a long time.
0: Well, it's a good point. That's a point that Dan Herbert actually made at the film, the uh, Wallaby, uh, a great Wallaby. Dan Herbert told me in, in 2018, you know, Australia's had this obsession of saying, okay, this guy can't coach, that guy can't coach. Um, but their prior records are really outstanding, um, you know, from Checker to Ewan McKenzie to Robbie Deans to Teddy Jones. Are we saying that they can't coach? No. Um, well, we shouldn't be anyway. They clearly can. And, um, I think with Dave Rennie though, let's be frankly honest. You know, he's it is, the Wallabies have been in many, many games over the last three years, and they've struggled and rarely converted close matches into wins. Um, and does Dave Rennie, you know, he's, his success goes back to 20? What is it now? 20, uh, 2012 and 2013 with hmm. the Chiefs, the last times that he's won titles. So it's not like he's come in like a if Scott Robinson was to join an international side at the moment where he's won six on the bounce. Um, Dave Rennie's last winning title was in 2013, and that was with Wayne Smith being his uh, great right-hand man and had players like Sonny Bill Williams and uh, Liam Essam and Brodie Ritalik and a young Sam Kane kind of coming through. A star-studded list. So I agree and I acknowledge that there's definitely some issues with... Um, Australian rugby whether or not the depth whether or not three to four to five sides has played a role in it I, I think it probably has um, we all know that there's an element of cohesion we all know that uh, sides are generally built you know, international sides are generally built on the back of the success or the huge integration from one or two clubs in particular um, But I think over the next four years, we'll see uh, more funding come into the game, whether or not that's through private equity. We'll wait and see on that. But certainly we're going to see at least $100 million come into the game through the hosting of the Lions and, and of course, the Home World Cup in 27.
1: Okay, just look, just final question. I mean, I've looked at the World Cup draw. I mean, to me, Australia sit on the easier side of it. You've potentially got New Zealand, South Africa, France and Ireland, they will play each other in quarterfinals. So four of the best teams in the world mm. will be reduced to two. On your side of the draw, you've got Wales, you've got England and Argentina if things go to plan. I mean, there's no reason why Australia can't end up making a World Cup final here. And once you're in the final, anything can happen. I mean, I mean that's ultimately will be the best thing for Australian rugby. I mean, do people look at it that way? I
0: completely agree. I think, the Wallabies are the absolute bolter amongst the, the the international sides at the moment. They might have slipped out of the consciousness recently, and, and people perhaps write them off. But yeah, you're right. The World Cup draw is phenomenal for them. Um, I, I think even with Eddie Jones all but certainly to to be sacked, it probably makes England an easier proposition if if the Wallabies were to to take on the English in a quarter final. Eddie Jones had won ten out of eleven tests coaching against the wallabies, you know. Warren Gatlin returning to Wales, I think, probably makes it harder. But I agree, and we all know that in the modern game with red cards, apparent uh, with injuries, we know the reliance of Johnny Sexton on Ireland. We know that they peaked a year early back in 2019. I think there's probably some similarities there going forward. The World Cup's incredibly open, but I think New Zealand and Australia would celebrate the fact that Eddie Jones is not going to be the England coach Um, a draw a win and a very narrow loss against New Zealand Um, Eddie Jones had that coaching record there with with England against the Kiwis so I think both New Zealand and Australia would celebrate Eddie Jones going uh, one of these two nations in in South Africa I think the ledger is now being tilted in the southern hemisphere's way for next year's World Cup I think
1: Christy Doran, lovely to have you on the program. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Good to join. Christy Doran there joining us talking all things Australian rugby. It is coming up to around about 10 minutes away from nine o'clock. Telephone numbers 0800 Good music choice tonight, red hot chili peppers. There we go, we're going well, we're on fire. We're having a, a nice little bit of um, yeah, slightly unconventional rock, isn't it? Would you describe the red hot chili peppers? What would genre would you describe the red hot chili peppers as? And it would, it's not really, is it grunge? It's not really grunge, is it? It's sort of,
10: is it like early alt rock? I don't really know what you'd call it. It's good though. It's, I love the chilies.
1: Yeah, now it's good. It was fresh, wasn't it, when it came along? It's like Guns N' Roses when they came along with Appetite for Destruction. You had that all sort of glam sort of metal, I guess, with the bleach blonde hair and that sort of commercial heavy metal, if you can use the word. And then these guys just came along with something raw. And you just need those bands that just come along, bring a different genre, just bring a different, um, just a different sound that you go, you cannot replicate that. And that's what these guys did.
10: 100%. Do you have a favourite chilli song?
1: Californication, I'm a little bit, I'm not a big Chilis fan. Yeah. I mean, no, I'm a Chilis fan, but I'm not a big yeah. student of it, to be honest.
10: Maybe I'll pull up my, my favourite one for you next, if you'd like.
1: Yeah, no, let's do that. Now look, coming up um, around about quarter to ten tonight, Martin Cross, who's former Olympic gold medalist and rowing former Olympic bronze medalist. He's English commentator. He was part of the commentating team that you would have heard during the Tokyo Olympics when the men's rowing eight won gold. He's going to join us on the programme because Mahe Drysdale Drysdale has just been awarded the Thomas Keller medal. Now, it's given by the World Rowing Federation for Outstanding International Career in the Sport of Rowing. It's the highest honour in rowing and it's awarded to any athlete within five years of his or her retirement from the sport. Um, It recognises an exceptional rowing career as well as exemplary... exemplary... Sportsmanship. Some days you just have nights and you just can't wrap your tongue around certain words, can you? It's been going since 1990 and five New Zealanders have received it. Caroline Everswindel, Georgina Everswindell in 2016 and then 2018 Eric Murray and Hamish Bond. Wasn't awarded in 2020, wasn't, uh, and I'm not sure when it was awarded last, but anyway, great for Mahe Drysdale. So lovely to see him being recognised by the International Rowing Federation for his remarkable career. Bronze medal in Beijing in 2008 when he was ill, and then gold in 2012, and then that photo finish for gold in 2016. An incredible athlete. Hard as they come. Lonely event. Incentive when you're sitting in a two-man boat, a four-man boat, an eight-man boat. Others around that you don't want to let down. In an individual boat, you've just got to be true and honest to yourself. And when you're breathing through your eyelids and there's bonfires in the legs and the lungs have been attacked by razor blades, it's not always that easy to be 100% honest to yourself. Mahe Drysdale, the consummate professional, the consummate athlete. We'll look at that round about quarter to ten tonight. looking forward to Guns N' Roses in Wellington Thursday night, flying down Thursday, coming back Friday before we get into some Australian Baseball League, calling for the Auckland Tuatara, looking forward to that as well. Do get yourself along to North Harbour Stadium uh, Friday night from 7 o'clock two games, a double header at North Harbour 3 o'clock and 7 o'clock and then 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. We've got the Melbourne Aces in town, the Auckland Tuatara, doing really well at the moment in the ABL. But it's not baseball we're going to talk. We're going to talk America's other favourite pastime now. We're going to talk basketball. Last night, we talked about the Boston Celtics, their remarkable record of 20-5 and five early on in the season. Tonight, we're going to talk about the one team that potentially could challenge them the Milwaukee Bucks. Joining us on the program, Kane Pittman from ESPN Australia. He's an NBA reporter and he's host of the Locked On Bucks podcast. Evening to you, Kane. Welcome. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, why are you a Milwaukee Bucks, man?
12: I lived over there. I lived over there for a couple of seasons. So um, prior to COVID, actually, I was working over there and I was covering the team and found my way into a bunch of different media ventures over there, writing for ESPN and doing some different podcasts and and TV stuff
11: over there. So
12: uh, I always liked the team uh, back in the day when Ray Allen played for Milwaukee, but then I got the opportunity to live there for a bit. So, um, yeah, I was very fortunate. And they were a very good team when I was there, which was also made it uh,
1: a bit of fun. Yeah, and that's funny. I did a postgraduate diploma in Toronto, Canada, and ever since been a Raptors fan and ever since yeah. been a, a Toronto uh, a Maple Leafs fan when it comes to the hockey. Um, so, so, I mean, we, we're aware of uh, Milwaukee in regards to its brewery. What else is Milwaukee famous for? Uh, cold weather, yeah. Cold uh, weather. Yeah. Okay, so so <laughs> New Zealanders it get on well over in Milwaukee.
12: I think they would but it might even be a a little bit colder yeah cold and dark and that's why people spend a lot of time in the bars and eating cheese drinking beers and sports so if you can handle that which I'm sure uh, some of your listeners can they probably would find it okay
1: and how's the podcast going what sort of numbers are you getting for the Locked On Bucks and and what's the feedback from the Americans having an Australian voicing this
12: well, it's always pretty funny to me. I'm always a little bit shocked that people have any interest in listening to me talk about the team, but I guess it's something that I've hung on to um, Since I was living in Milwaukee, and it's actually not bad timing-wise. I mean, you know exactly what it's like. You can sit on the couch and watch NBA all day long if you're fortunate enough to have a job that allows you to do so. So uh, we did pretty well. Yeah, we were up around nearly 2 million listens last, last year and, and the year before that. So uh, there is a, a big number of people that, for some reason, like listening to me talk about Milwaukee, which is pretty cool.
1: So if I decide to go to Milwaukee and I want to watch the Bucks, you're the guy I need to call and you're going to make some calls and I'm going to get picked up by a limo, I'm going to get the whole corporate box and I'm going to get looked after because I know the guy that knows the guy.
12: Send me a text. I got you covered.
1: Okay, absolutely. Hey, look, remarkable record, 17-6, and six, uh, winning percentage of 739 or 0.739 or 73.9%, not far behind the Boston Celtics. One hell of a start to the season. Were you expecting this type of start?
12: Well, it was interesting because uh, I think the biggest concern coming into at least the start of the season was that there was a, a number of injuries with this team. So Chris Middleton, and a three-time All-Star, has actually only just come back over the weekend. So he's played two games uh, out of those 23 games so far there. They've had a number of key role players. Joe Ingalls, Dozzy, has yet to play a game he's recovering from. An ACL, uh, ruptured ACL last year. Pat Connaughton's missed a bunch of games. Wesley Matthews, you can go down the list. So uh, I think if you look at uh, the stats online, they are in the top one or two teams in terms of games missed through injury this year. So uh, when you put all that together and you look at it and you say that to be 17-6 and six and where they are, it's probably a better spot than I thought they would be just through availability to start the season. So I think they have to be pretty happy.
1: Yeah, what does Chris Middleton's return from injury mean for the Bucks' title hopes?
12: Well, a lot in terms of easing the load on the offence. So the Bucks right now are the number one defence in the league uh, by a, a decent margin. But offensively, they haven't had a great year. They're around middle of the pack now. Giannis is scoring 31, 32 points a game, and he's been sensational. But he's carrying a, a major load. They haven't shot the ball well from three. So Chris Middleton is the best offensive player in the half court for this team. He's the best shooter on the team. And he's also an underrated facilitator. And the Bucks often will just go to two-man game with Chris Middleton and Giannis. And it's almost impossible to stop. That's their go-to Uh, set down the stretch in the fourth quarter of close games so I think it's just going to ease the load on everyone on the offensive end because to this point uh, they haven't been that impressive
1: Mm. You mentioned Giannis there does he have the right pieces around him to win another championship this year?
12: Yeah I think he does I mean last year the series that they lost to the Boston Celtics that went to seven games, but that man, Chris Millicent, was out because he hurt his knee in the first round against the Chicago Bulls. And again, they just could not score. So I, I think for most teams, and Boston clearly has had an incredible start to the season, but for all those teams, if you lose one of your top two players, an all star from your roster, you're going to find it really difficult to, find, uh, to win that championship. So the Bucks, like many teams in the NBA, they're taking care of guys, they're being super cautious with different health stuff and injuries that they have along the way. Uh, this is a team that I think is is as well-equipped as any to win the NBA title this year, but you still cross your fingers and hope that everyone gets to June uh, healthy because if they don't, uh, they're probably not going to win.
1: It. OK, I want to talk about Brook Lopez. How important is he to coach Mike um, Budenholzer's defensive system?
12: Uh, he's incredible. I think he'd probably be leading uh, defensive player of the year right now, leads the league in blocks per game. And I mentioned this defense, the reason why the Bucks defense is so bad is because teams just cannot score in the paint. There's averaging in the low 40s in terms of shooting percentage uh, when Brook Lopez is the closest defender. Uh, he has this incredible ability to time his block shots without fouling. And we see guys walk into the free throw line all the time, but with Brook Lopez there, he is a humongous man. I mean, these NBA players are huge, but he is a man-mountain, and he's just able to time... Uh, his shot block, as well as anyone in the league. And he had major back surgery last year and missed the majority of the season. So at 34 years old, uh, this probably wasn't expected, but he's arguably having the best season he's had in the last seven or eight.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's a giant of a man. Um, he can score on the paint, shoot threes, as you mentioned. Um, I mean, how important is he to the way that Giannis runs the offense?
12: Yeah, he's, he's the modern day big man. And it's been an incredible turnaround from where he was. So uh, only six or seven seasons ago, he had not shot a single three-pointer in his entire NBA career, and he'd been in the league for eight years at that point. Uh, he ticked over 800 made threes a couple of nights ago. So he has completely transformed his game to fit the, the modern style of five-out spacing and being able to shoot the three. And it does just allow Giannis to get downhill. He doesn't have a big man in the paint, clogging up space, uh, he will be out there. He's shooting a, a career-high 42% from three so far this season on pretty high volume. So uh, his turnaround in what he's been able to do in terms of changing his game is, you know, to me, as remarkable as any player we've seen in, in recent times.
1: Okay. Do you see the Bucks making any tweaks to their roster midway through the season? Yeah, that's a good
12: question. I, I don't know right now whether I would, and it's been difficult to, to look at this team and see where the weaknesses are because, As I kind of mentioned, they haven't really had their full lineup uh, out there yet. They put a significant investment in Joe Ingalls. They're paying him around $7 million this year, which was really the only salary slot they had to give up in the offseason. But they did that understanding that he's not going to be back until the new year, most likely. So I think this is a team that wants to have a look at Joe Ingalls, wants to get all its pieces together, and then make a decision before the trade deadline, which is in mid-February. So I'm not expecting there will be a move made anytime soon but they have been discussed in trade rumours for Jay Crowder who is currently Mm. sitting at home with his feet up and not playing for the Phoenix Suns.
1: Now they won the championship in 2020. Do you think this year's Bucks are a step up on that 2020 championship winning side or are they just more of a constant force?
12: Yeah, constant force. I mean if you look at uh, the teams around the league that have made major changes or they've had young players come in and make a real impact, uh, the Bucks are pretty much the same. Their top five or six players, seven players, if you include guys like Pat Connaughton and Bobby Portis, they just haven't changed their roster. They've changed the way they play a little bit in terms of defensively, what they're trying to do there. Uh, have always been a great paint defensive team, but now they're trying to protect the three-point line a little bit more. But in terms of personnel, it hasn't changed. So, yeah, they should be a contender. And when you've got Giannis, who could be an MVP every single season, has put up 50 points in an NBA Finals championship clinching game, uh, you think that you're a pretty good shot.
1: Yeah, no, you're almost converting me to be a Milwaukee Bucks fan. (laughs) Now, now look, are are the Bucks the only team that can stop the Celtics this year or are there other threats lurking in the Eastern and Western conferences?
12: Yeah, I think the, the team to watch in terms of what's going to happen to their roster in the East, The rest of the way, for me, is still the Brooklyn Nets. Now, clearly, there has been a lot going on there, to say the least. But I I still think if you have uh, Kevin Durant, uh, Ben Simmons obviously has been much maligned. But if he can stay healthy, he was starting to play better basketball. So I still think the Nets are a little bit of a wild card in the Eastern Conference. But then out in the West, I like the Phoenix Suns. They really struggled today against the Dallas Mavericks. But this is a team that's been to the NBA Finals before. They've had those couple of moments where they didn't quite get over the hump in the postseason. That was exactly what the Milwaukee Bucks did a couple of years ago. And we see that often with teams that need to have that heartbreak a couple of times, get that playoff experience. So I still think the Phoenix Suns are the team to watch in the Western Conference.
1: Mm. I mean we're all uh, Memphis Grizzly fans over here as Stephen Adams right. uh, Jam- yes. Jamarant I mean last year they pushed um, they, they, they pushed the Golden State Warriors to game 7 you'd argue that they potentially could have gone the whole way if they had in fact won game 7 what what sort of do you think they're, a, they're better for that experience this year that come playoffs they're a side that you won't want to meet
12: yeah I would say so for the same reason that I mentioned with Giannis as well, when you've got that one superstar player that can get you 50 in a game like John Morant, you have to be a little bit wary of them. Mm. I think for the most part, people look at the Grizzlies and say, are they ready to win a championship? Because they're just so young. I mean, this is a team that you expect to be contending for a long, long period of time. But you mentioned Stephen Adams. And if, if there is one player that I would love to see win a title for how he would celebrate, for how the post-game press conference would be, I think it would be Stephen Adams, because I still have him. At the top of my mm. list for my favourite press conference performers, he is absolutely outstanding. Mm.
1: Silly question now. The Milwaukee Bucks there are a lot of deer in Milwaukee, are they?
12: Yeah, there is. It's uh, very dangerous if you're out there driving, them, which for me was dangerous enough on the wrong side of the road. And there's deer all over the place.
1: And, and who's, who's the most famous player? Uh, in the history
12: of the franchise, Kareem. Kareem played for the Bucs and he won a title back in 1971 but then other than that it, w- it would be Giannis uh, he's, he's clearly, I mean he is <laughs> a mega celebrity in Wisconsin over there he is a, as much nice as any uh, athlete I think they've had in the state to be honest
1: Fascinating, loving the chat um, so we've got the Milwaukee Brewers, you've got the, uh, you've got the Bucks. what other professional franchises exist in that part of the state it's just the two? Uh,
12: they have got the Green Bay Packers, which oh, is, Green Bay uh, Packers. Of days.
1: course they do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
12: a couple what? of hours out of town, which is uh, always a fun drive. I made the trip out there a couple of times.
1: And I'd imagine they, which sort of, uh, yeah, I'd imagine the Green Bay Packers probably still rule the roost, don't they? But it always helps when you win a championship and win a recent one as well in twenty twenty.
12: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, it is still a football state no doubt about that. But uh, the Packers are really struggling right now. The Brewers didn't even make the postseason last year in the the baseball. So uh, the Bucs are kind of the the great white hope for uh, Wisconsin to win another title. And uh, they've gone through it with Aaron Rodgers. If you have NFL fans that are listening to the show, he's only won one title, but he's been a generational uh, quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. So So the Wisconsin sports fans understand that you have to make the most of this opportunity while you have a superstar like an Aaron Rodgers or like... Uh, Giannis as well so there's definitely a I would say impatience when it comes to the Bucs and they want to get that second and third title uh, for him so there is a lot of pressure that comes with that.
1: Kane just before we let you go people that might want to listen to the Locked On Box podcast when do you what day of the week do you present new episodes how do people find it?
12: Yeah Monday to Friday there's a lot we do a lot so Monday to Friday get it on YouTube uh, or wherever you get your podcast as well. So the, if, you, if for some reason you haven't had enough listening to me for tonight, you can do that, and we're doing it uh, every day.
1: No, Kane, lovely to have you on the program, and love the passion, love the enthusiasm. Thank you for a bit of an insight into the Milwaukee Bucks. Greatly appreciated.
12: Oh, happy to do it any time. Thanks for having me.
1: 14 minutes after nine, you're listening to SENZ. Right, the lines are open. Oh, eight hundred one five zero eight double one. Been an interesting night that we've. Um, uh, had so far, um, NBA teams. You got a favourite team and why? Oh, I studied in Toronto, so I'm a Toronto Raptors fan. I guess growing up like anybody, been a little impressionable. Uh, probably LA Lakers. I think as a young kid, Boston Celtics, Larry Bird, and then you know we all followed the Michael Jordan era with the Chicago Bulls. Wonderful era as well. Um, I've been very lucky that watched a lot of the Toronto Raptors when I studied up there. Could pay ten dollars, sit in the Sprite Zone. Saw Sean Marks play his first 37 seconds in the NBA. But probably the highlight of my basketball, and people are going to hate me for saying this, true story, watch the 2008 Olympic Games final in Beijing between the Dream Team, which they've just made a Netflix documentary on, and Spain. Sat almost courtside with the odd commentator Peter Montgomery and Brendan Telfer. True story. Got photos at home to prove it. Then I'm seeing this big Netflix doco on that particular Olympic Games that I guess they've done off the success of the Michael Jordan documentary, and I think I was there. I was there. Now I'm skiting, aren't I? Now I'm showing off. Anyway, take a break. It's 20 minutes after nine, you're listening to SENZ. Martin Cross will join us on the programme out of the UK at around about quarter to ten to have a look at this prize that New Zealand's greatest single sculler, Mahe Drysdale, has just picked up. And it is the most prestigious prize in rowing. It is the Thomas Keller Medal. And it's basically awarded to services for rowing anywhere up to five years after you've retired. Martin Cross, the voice of international rowing He'll try and put this in context And give a British perspective on Mahe Drysdale And his legacy and how highly regarded he was internationally But what we thought we'd do now Was bring you some highlights from the FIFA Football World Cup Courtesy of our commentary team here at SEN in Australia And SENZ here in New Zealand The game today, first up, was Croatia taking on Japan
6: So a corner here for Japan, taken short by Ito, popped into the back post, header is just off target from Japan. It was Shogo Tanaguchi, the centre-back, who rose highest, and they've been caught on the ball here, Tommy Asher's giving it away, here's Ivan Pedisic, Pedisic sizes it up, saved by Gonda. One-on-one save, Petkovic is in the box, there's a lot of Japanese players crowding the area, and Gonda falls on the ball. Maeda who drops in opens up some space for Ritsu Dwan and now Junior Ito on the right flank. Maeda's inside the box Ito gets towards him to the back post it's beaten two Japanese on runners it was a tasty cross from Junior Ito. Swings it across the face of Yoshida over to the right centre back to Tomiyasu and now onto Ito who's pushing past gets a cross in and it was straight through the hands of Dominik Livakovic and up into his chest the goalkeeper here comes the third one now. Batisic gets it in the box again takes a touch at the back post and it's missed. The ball stays alive for a moment. It was Kramaric who missed it. And oh, he's back-heeled it wonderfully well. Now it's Days and Maida. Squares it to Endo. Endo cuts on his left foot. In behind the defence. Marina pulls the trigger and it's over the crossbar. Corner from the right side. Duane takes it short. Kamada goes infield to Ito. Duane gets it in at the back post. Bobbles around and Japan do score. It's Days and Maida. Left footed shot inside the 18-yard box and all all that pressure from Japan finally results in a goal right before half time and now a long ball from Lovren to the back stick and a lovely header, oh it's a bullet it is a sublime header from Ivan Penisic who knows how to score goals at the World Cup, it falls kindly to Wataru Endo who steps onto the right foot takes a shot and it's saved by Dominic Livakovic. hand in the air he goes Modric with a strike, oh beautiful save, unreal save from Shuichi Gonda, Modric absolutely lashed the cover off that from outside the box, it just fell to him, it took a touch and Shuichi Gonda got his left ha- left hand over the top and got it around the post and over the crossbar. And the referee blows on his whistle to end the 90 minutes, but that is not the end of the game. In the knockout phase, we are off to extra time. Here goes Matoma getting closer to the box. Matoma cuts in. Matoma with the right-footed shot. And it's parried away by Livakovic. Tasked with a long throw. Inside the box. Iranovic brings it into the front post. Comes up off a Japanese player. And it's into the hands of the keeper. Gonda. Tries to hold it up. He does with the pass evaded Ito and now they go again here's Lovro Maia with the shot and it's to the left of the goals Japan with the first penalty take it'll be Takumi Minamino against Dominic Livakovic Minamino on the right foot and it's been saved by Dominic Livakovic Gauru Mitoma, next up for Japan. Right-footed strike, and it's been saved again by Livakovic. He has guessed right again. So it's 2-1 in the shootout after three each. Here's mai Yoshida, the captain of Japan. It's been saved by Dominic Livakovic. Mario Pasalic steps up against Gonda, and he's put it down the left side. And Croatia are through to the quarterfinals.
1: Yes, indeed. So Croatia go through following that game. We had Brazil taking on South Korea.
6: Rafinha on the right flank, a nice little step over, and then opens up some space on the right side. Cuts the cross back Has in. Name I it. Vinicius. What a oh, finish that is! Goal. What a finish that is. Vinicius Jr. He is the new name of Brazilian football. Looking to thread it through the gaps. Richarlison oh, came out. It. It's a penalty. Richarlison was the player coming in from behind. The South Korean player had left a foot out. Stutters in. Walks up. Right foot shot. Oh. He rolls it down the center. And Neymar is on the score sheets. And Brazil, in a trice, are up two goals to nil. Neymar bounces the ball <laughs> off his head two, <laughs> three times. In fact, right, it was Richarlison. Cut back. in behind. Oh. oh. Oh my word! That is Brazilian beauty. Oh. Quick passing around the box, intricate in, out, front, back. Richarlison, one on one with the keeper. He escaped behind the defence. They didn't know where he was, and he just stroked it past. Brazil three, South Korea nil. Here's Neymar up the left. Vinicius Junior. back inside the area again. Clips it over dink. the top, and oh, the shot oh, comes in. One. Oh another Brazil! One. Brazil! Lucas oh, Paquetá. Proper party time now. But out, they've got a chance. South Korea's in here. Yeah, and oh, it's just please. past the back posts. Oh. They were a chance. Son Hyun Min. here had floored his defender. He had space to work into. Out to the right sides. Rafinha running at Chong Hul. Rafinha squares it inboard. Rafinha continues his oh. run. Here's Rafinha's chance. Cuts oh. around once, twice. Oh. Left foot shot. Oh, look, that's and it's a strong hand. Strong hand from Kim Sung-gyu. Vinicius carries it over the halfway line. Strides oh, forward. Neymar out to the Rafinha. right. Here's Rafinha. Here's Rup. his chance. Saved again by Kim Sung-gyu. Crossing the left here for Korea. Into the box. Second chance comes up. A oh, strike. Nice. And a great nice save from Allison. And then a goal line clear from Marquinhos. And then out over the byline. Well, two great chances for South Korea. Ricochet away. Cho with a shot. Oh, that's a It is a well-hit shot. Stunning. And it was smashed in by Pak Sung-ho. That that is probably the first first long-range absolute hammer that we've had at this World Cup. Yes, plus injury time. They're in behind again here. South Korea and, oh, (laughs) save at the near post by Allison. Brazil go again. Here's Rodrigo. Spots Gabriel Martinelli. Looking to cut one way then the other on his left foot by line, back post cross Rafinha Dani Alves! Oh! It was Danny Alves indeed. what a story that would have been. That is full- time in this round of 16 encounter and it is a famous vintage Brazilian win 4-1 over South Korea at Stadium 974. and in the first half it was joyous, joyous football from Brazil.
1: And two further Round 16 games to come, 4am tomorrow morning. We'll have live coverage on the app if you do want to listen to that. That is Morocco taking on Spain. Morocco going very much as the underdog. But hey, we haven't seen yet an upset, have we, in the Round of 16? The favoured teams have all gone through. Will Morocco be the first team to cause the big upset? Or will Switzerland beat Portugal? Switzerland, a niggly side. Know how to get the job done. Will that be another game that goes to penalties? That game, 8am, again, you can listen to commentary live here on SENZ through the app. Download the SEN app. Take a break. You're listening to SENZ. Telephone number if you do want to phone the program, 0800 150 811.
7: Had a busy day? Catch up on what you've missed in the world of sport. It's Extra Time on SENZ.
1: And, a
7: life
1: and we continue the Pearl Jam theme. Loving it. S-E-N-Z, Mark Watson with you. Telephone number oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one. if you do want to phone the programme. Um, interesting, I was just watching one of the televisions in the studio here during the break and just admiring a replica of the FIFA Football World Cup. It is this most stunning trophy, isn't it? Is there a nicer trophy in world sport? The women's equivalent is nice too. It's different, but it's a nice-looking trophy. And I was just sort of thinking to myself, what are the great trophies? And I guess the one that stands out in terms of its uniqueness is probably the Stanley Cup in ice hockey. Mm, Just absolutely, it's a monstrosity. Um, If you win the Stanley Cup, you get your name engraved on it, not just the team, but you get your name engraved on it. And when they start to run out of room, they remove a layer of engravement, and that gets put into the... Hockey or the Ice Hockey Hall of Fame permanently. So you basically have your team and the name eventually removed from the trophy and then put into the Hall of Fame rather than continuing to build more and more layers on the Stanley Cup. There's actually three Stanley Cups in existence. There's one that sort of goes touring, there's one that's permanently in the Hall of Fame and then there's one that stays with the teams and if you do win it every player gets for at night, it's been in the bottom of swimming pools, it's been everywhere, the Stanley Cup Uh, Any sort of trophies that stand out for you that you sit back and go wow that's pretty cool or alternatively you go, well that's pretty damn ugly
10: I'll give you two examples Um, I think the one that looks beautiful to me, it's grand it's elegant, is Wimbledon Um, it's just stunning, the gold the intricacies of of, the, of, of how it's designed. It's beautiful. It looks a little bit
1: like the, it looks a little bit like the Men's Rugby World Cup.
10: Yeah, well, I, I think the William Webb Ellis Trophy is also quite nice to look at. I don't know if you agree.
1: Yeah, no, I do. I think it does look good. Yeah. yeah, I think it does look good.
10: But the one I wanted to chat to you about, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but it's the Welsh Football League's Trophy. It. it some people think it's cool. I think it's a monstrosity. Pull up a picture if you can. I can't pronounce the name of the league, but it's C-Y-M-R-U, Trophy. And basically, it's a massive silver trophy with two dragons fighting on top of it. That's what it looks like.
1: I'm just trying to bring it up on the computer now. Um, it's, uh,
10: it's it's quite detailed.
1: Um, oh yeah, I look at it yeah, it looks a little bit like um, i tell you what it actually reminds me of. It looks a little bit like, just to a small part, it looks a little bit like the claret jug that you get for Winning the oh, Open yeah. Championship. Yeah. But there's also an element of, oh, there's a slight America's Cup feel about it too. I mean, the America's Cup is a nice looking trophy.
10: Yeah, it is. It's one I'd like to win, but I don't sail, so there goes that. Well, you're trophy. never going to win that, are you? Nah, don't know why I brought it up.
1: And you're never going to play in the Welsh Football League, so I'm not sure why you brought that up. Yeah. i nah, not right, sure why you brought Wimbledon up. I think your tennis game's fairly damn average.
10: Oh, I'm terrible with ball sports, eh? Um, bat sports, sorry. Yeah, good good it, rugby, but um, yeah, none of this. The other one you should look up is the Korean baseball trophy, Korean baseball league trophy.
1: Korean baseball league. I mean, I like the um, world. I like the Major League baseball trophy, where it's the whole lot of little like, oh yeah, like the flag poles almost yeah. that sort of create a stadium or sort of a um, a coliseum look.
10: The Korean one's slightly different. Um, it's more Excalibur. Um, it's more Merlin's sword. Um, Let's have a look. See if you can. I encourage
1: it. everybody to do this themselves at home. By the way, <laughs> it's not always great radio when you. We're still talking, though, aren't we?
10: Yeah, we are. I can describe it for people. I mean, it looks like something off the Lord of the Rings set. Um, it's quite large.
1: Um, oh, it's yeah, yeah, it's not too bad. It's got a bit of. Um, I think I'm looking at the right one.
10: It's a giant sword. If that's what you're looking at. No. Oh no. No. Uh, the Korean Baseball League. Um,
1: all right, Korean Baseball League trophy. That's maybe what I need to be doing.
10: Yeah, it's it's just a giant sword. Um,
1: I mean, the NRL trophy's a nice one.
10: Yeah, it's classy. It's classy. But for me, it is the FIFA World Cup. It's oh yeah, stunning. no, I've
1: seen it. Now I've seen it. Now oh, you've it's basically seen it? yeah. It's, oh, that's cool.
10: Yeah, it's different.
1: Yeah, no, it is different.
10: I wonder how heavy it is, Mark. It looks
1: heavy. Yeah. Guy pulling it out because it's done a little bit like stuck in the rock thing, isn't it? Boy, it's very um. Yeah, no, it's very um, medieval looking. It's almost sort of got a Lord of the Rings feel, hasn't it? As, or yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like fantasy, like, Game of Thrones. We got some. Yeah, Game of. Th- I've never seen Game of Thrones. Never seen a single episode of Game of Thrones. I'm the one person who hasn't waiting to do it at some point. Interesting. I mean, seen Breaking Bad. Haven't done the others.
10: I was late to the party with Game of Thrones, but I was blown away for about five of the eight seasons. Um, they did not end it well. So don't bother.
1: No, but you can't say that.
10: You should watch There's some house. people
1: you probably don't like that I do like.
10: Oh yeah, give me an example of some of the shows you're into.
1: Oh no, I enjoyed Breaking Bad. I enjoyed The Wire. Um, so you've just got good taste. Well, no, I just like stuff that's going to challenge me a little bit. Um, I don't like predictability. Mm. I'm not a big one for watching movies where it's predictable. You know the outcome.
10: You, you love a twist. You love suspense. Oh, I the love drama. the. I love the
1: villain often dying. Yep. Yeah, I love. The or hero I like just dying. a really. I like just a little bit of just wow! I didn't expect that. All right, Um, anyway, people might want to have some thoughts. Maybe you could text us here on Sports Trophies of the World that you like or you don't like. Um, you might have seen some in some far part of the world that we're not even aware of. But great thing with Google, we can find an image of it and we can sort of pass judgment, either agree or disagree with you. So text us here on double We're going to take another break. When we come back, international rowing commentator Martin Cross is going to join us on the programme. You would have heard his dulcet tones when the New Zealand rowing team did so well at the Tokyo Olympics and particularly when the New Zealand rowing team uh, won that men's eight Because Mahe Drysdale has just been awarded the Thomas Keller Medal. It is the most prestigious medal that can be handed out by the World Rowing Federation. We'll talk to Martin Cross up next. It is 17 minutes away from 10 o'clock. You're listening to SENZ, while New Zealand's rich legacy in the sport of rowing continues with more recognition for New Zealand sculling legend Mahe Drysdale. Now, New Zealand's double Olympic champion and five-time single sculls world champion, won rowing's most prestigious award the thomas keller medal now to try and put this into some context for people out there decided to head across to the uk and catch up with the voice of international rowing martin cross martin himself an olympic games gold medalist from 1984 a bronze medalist in 1980 he joins us martin good evening good morning welcome how are you i'm great mark it's lovely to talk with you yeah firstly um uh, who was thomas keller who was thomas keller
13: So um, Tommy Keller was a a long-term president of world rowing, and uh, he was very influential in the sport, very influential in Olympic sport, and he was operational, I think, to all the athletes. So the Keller family, um, based in Switzerland, decided to endow in his memory uh, a solid gold medal to um, each year to the athlete, that's the school bell that you can hear in the background, by the way. That's all right. To the, to the athlete to the athlete, um, who has had an exceptional career and who has made a real impact on the sport uh, in terms of getting on with their uh, competitors, in terms of being interested in uh, making the sport, allowing the sport to move on. So that's endowed each year and actually I sit on the committee that awards it as well So, um, and that's been a real honour for me. So it it is a very special award, it started back in 1990, the first award was uh, the little Norwegian Alf Hansen who Tommy Keller admired and it's been going ever since.
1: So when did Mahe Drysdale's name sort of come into the discussion um, and was it an easy decision?
13: Um, no, it wasn't an easy decision. Um, th- there are some exceptional uh, rowers out there. Um, so my Hayes name was in the frame along with Richard Schmidt, who is the great German oarsman, um, Olympic champion in the men's eights. Elle Logan from the USA. Uh, she's got three Olympic gold medals in the women's eight and uh, in American women's eight. And that's, you know sensational, um, another Kiwi, Grace Prendergast, of course, um, in terms of her pedigree, we all know about that, and then um, Heather Stanning from Great Britain, double Olympic champion. So um, the, the field was really, really competitive, I think, for that uh, medal this year.
1: And so why Mahe Dryster Why did he end up getting the nod?
13: Well... Um, I think Mahé has got all the qualities that it takes to to be a Thomas Keller medal winner. I think you mentioned his uh, Palmares, the uh, five world titles and uh, the two Olympic golds, one Olympic bronze. So that puts him in there. The longevity of his career, um, you know, Mahé started to compete back in 2004 at the Athens Olympics. That's another criteria. Um, I think the relationship with his competitors, one of the things about Mahe uh, is that he's, you know, tough racing on the water, but so much friendly off it with his, you know, immediate competitors. People like Olaf Tufte, his top Chop, uh, André Sinek, Alan Campbell, uh, Damien Martin, um, who so narrowly um, got that silver medal in Rio. So he's a great friend and competitor and that really is something that the sport of rowing loves to see that those relationships the camaraderie off it he's been involved in rowing and sculling he was in the kiwi eight he was rowing in the 2004 olympics so he's adept with one blade as as well as two blades Mm. and then he's, he's a spokesperson for um causes within rowing uh, he, he will always come and talk very respectfully to the people at World Rowing about issues that he thinks need attention. So he's really across everything and those are the criteria of the Thomas Keller medal and, and it's rare to find somebody like Mahe that, that does stuff like that.
11: Mm.
1: Fifth New Zealander to win it because in 2016 Caroline Everswindel, Georgina Everswindel and then in 2018 Eric, Bar- Eric Murray and Hamish Bond so um, yeah, it, 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 it's it's a wonderful reflection on New Zealand and New Zealanders as a whole.
13: Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, uh, those Kiwis have been iconic, not just in terms of New Zealand. You mentioned the with dales, but, you know, in terms of being inspirational to uh, people in sport in general, and particularly women in sport, I think... Um, with the Everswindells, Swindells, it's been uh, a real inspiration. Uh, And and Murray and Bond, they got the double award together. Um, They're obviously an iconic duo. But it is, I think if you add added up the nationalities that have won the Thomas Keller Medal Award, I think you'd see Kiwis right at the top of the poll.
1: Mm, Absolutely. So those that uh, missed out narrowly lost to Mahe this year, do they go back into the discussion next year? because they still have been retired for less than five years?
13: Yeah, it's a good shout. Um, we're we're going to take a look at all of those uh, four that uh, missed out uh, to Mahe. Um, I think it would be nice to see the US Women's Aid get some recognition, and that's why L Logan is in there, the 3 times Olympic champion. It would be nice to see the German men's eight that's been such an iconic mm. part of our sport gets some recognition at all. So that, that's why Richard Schmidt, um, is in there. So they go forward for next year's, uh, consideration along with any others. Um, so it's, it's unusual that people will retire from the sport. That's another criteria for the Thomas Keller medal that you've actually retired from the sport. Um, and, and it's unusual that people will retire the year before the Olympics. So probably uh, it will be a similar field next year for the medal.
1: Mm. OK, now now that Mahi is out of the game and didn't get selected for the last Olympics, where is single sculling at the moment? Who's the next generation coming through? Who's the next big thing?
13: Oh, uh, That's a great shout, uh, Mark. Well, the next big thing is this enormous german he kind of looks a bit like a bond villain um he is about six foot eight he's got blonde hair um he is ollie zeidler he's come into rowing quite recently from the world of swimming uh he was a, a good sort of 200 meter freestyler and um his grandfather won an olympic gold medal in the munich olympics so he's got a rowing heritage but he sensationally won the 2019 World Rowing Championships in one of the best races that I've ever seen and then this year in the World Championships in Rotice, the Czech Republic he also won the world title um, by a margin actually and he's an interesting guy not least because when he was in Tokyo he blew out and uh, didn't make the A final and everyone expected he'd be favourite for gold so there's there's him, there's uh, the great Norwegian sculler, um, Ketel Borch, so uh, new Dutchman on the scene, Melvin Tweller, who beat Oli Seidler on his home course in Munich in the Europeans, but couldn't manage to do the same in the World Championships. So, you know, there's a great uh, field in, in single scullers, and Mahe Drysdale, he was out of the World Championships in the Czech Republic um, for the what I call the Legends race with his great buddy, Andre Sinek, the Czech sculler, and They were watching all these new scholars and uh, they were really impressed with the quality and uh, the speed with which they're moving.
1: Are they going faster than Mahe? I mean, you don't officially have world records because of the ever-changing conditions of courses and some of the geographical stuff, but you do have the world's fastest times. I mean, is dry sales times still stack up?
13: Well, yeah, it's interesting, actually. The world's best mark is is another Kiwi scholar, Robbie Manson, who uh, I guess he retired prematurely. Yeah. But um, these guys are right on that pace. And if they had a decent following wins, uh, which you need to, to break the world's best time, then uh, they would definitely be right on that mark. And I think, you know, the sport of rowing does move on year by year. And, you know, as fast as Mahé was, these new guys are, are really pushing the envelope on, on, that, uh, on that mark. So I think, you know, given a good following win, they'd probably break the world's best time.
1: And just quickly on the women's side, Caroline Florin, uh, the Dutch um, single sculler. And we didn't necessarily see the best of Emma, Emma Twigg this year, but is she now the athlete to beat heading towards Paris?
13: Oh, she's had an amazing season, Caroline Florin. She's definitely the athlete to beat. Un, unbeaten in the season, you know, she's, she's come up against anyone. Uh, and, you know, you saw her race, Emma Twigg, Kiwi, who, as you say, I think, you know, post-Olympics, uh, she hadn't had the best of seasons, She couldn't race at Henley and Lucerne because of COVID. So um, Caroline got Emma at a good time. But I think the rivalry between those two going forward to Paris is going to be sensational. And it's going to be either one or the other for the gold medal in Paris, I'm sure.
1: Martin Cross, as always, lovely to have you on the program. I'll let you back to your teaching duties. I've heard the second bell go. I don't want you getting the detention, my good man.
13: Cheers, Mark. I'm going to get right back there now.
1: Fantastic. Martin Cross there, Olympic Games gold medalist, um, part of the selection panel for this wonderful achievement for Mahe Drysdale. Mahe Drysdale picking up the Thomas Keller medal, going right back to 1990 when Alf Hansen first won it. You run through some of the names. Uh, You've got Steve Redgrave, the great Steve Redgrave uh, out of Great Britain. Redgrave won it in 2001. Matthew Pinsent won it in 2005. I'm just trying to read out some of the names that New Zealanders might be Familiar with, you had the great Canadian Silken Lauman, Kathleen Heddle of Canada, along with Lauman in 1999. Just seeing who's won it in more recent times. Yeah, Eric Murray, Hamish Bond wasn't awarded in 2020. So just another another um, gong for the great Mahe Drysdale. Let's just hope that we can continue. You mentioned Robbie Manson there. Manson, world's fastest time. Just never quite get it right, could he, in the big finals. I think fifth at World Champs. And, um, yeah, and then I I guess you go back to Rob Waddell back in 2004, winning the single skulls. Uh, Eric Verdonk, I think, won a bronze, didn't he, in 1988. So got such a rich history in single skulls. I I think that individual rowers should always get it over team rowers. I think team, you can lean on other people individual, it's lonely, it's only you it's you versus you I think when you've got other people in the boat there's that incentive to never give up I think it's when yourself, you can probably be a little bit soft at times, because you're only letting yourself down, and therefore I think it makes it a lot harder 5 minutes away from 10, coming up after 10 o'clock we're going to replay an interview that we did after 7 that's with Garth Galloway looking at that wonderful performance of England beating Pakistan, have England changed chess cricket forever, that is very much the word coming out of the UK
7: busy day catch up on what you've missed in the world of sport it's extra time on SENZ. It's hard to keep in and hard.
1: I'm a dreadful dreadful singer uh, when I was studying in Toronto Canada back in 98-99 I occasionally get a few beers I'm not a big never been a big drinker but I did have a bit of a year off and occasionally would go out and get happy and um, go to the odd karaoke bar. And the only song that I could actually do was Sweet Child of Mine from Guns N' Roses. Can't do anything else. Can't sing to save myself, but certainly looking forward to being in Wellington on Thursday night to watch the Guns N' Roses concert. Can't believe the price of airfares though. Domestically unbelievable. Anyway, telephone number's 0800 150 811. Earlier tonight, we had a bit of a discussion around... Trophies in sport, and I was just looking at how nice that FIFA Football World Cup trophy is for the men's Really nice one for the women's as well Maybe not as familiar to people as the men's one Um, Which sort of just created a bit of discussion between myself and Niv around trophies that you like Uh, What are some of the most famous trophies or iconic trophies? Uh, The ones that look the coolest, perhaps the ones that look the ugliest So if you do want to comment on that, we'd love to hear from you Uh, Mark, good evening, welcome
5: Hello, Mark. How are you? Good, thanks. I've got to admit, some of my favourite uh, bits of silverware are the AFL trophy here in Australia. Yes. Especially especially when Sydney have won it. Um, also, the Australian Baseball League trophy is a really fine-looking one. But one of my absolute favourites would be the America's Cup. And uh, as you said earlier tonight, and it just made me think of... Uh, how New Zealanders always stick up for each other with regard to getting behind each other and supporting each other in the Americas Cup, because I'm remembering 1987 when Paul Holmes first interviewed Dennis Connor. Correct. Him. And he asked yep. he, he asked Dennis Connor, what do you apologize for calling New Zealand yacht designer Bruce Farr a loser and full of uh, SH12? And Dennis stormed off, and if I recall rightly, Dennis overturned Paul Holmes's desk. And stu- on uh, storming out, and that sort of gave Paul a ratings boost and put him on top of the New Zealand current affairs ratings for the rest of his career. And um, I just loved it how Paul stood up for all New Zealand and asked the questions that every New Zealander wanted to ask. Oh, to Conner. yeah.
1: Look, I think, and I think a lot of that is almost deliberate. I don't think Paul Holmes was stupid. I think he realised that if he could create um, a, basically a verbal fist fight. Um, and get that sort of reaction. That's always going to be good for your ratings, isn't it? It's always going to put the focus yes, on it. And, and Dennis Connor, and Dennis t- of was much maligned. Bruce Farr, by the way, man of at grammar. old oh boy, I just thought I'd throw that in, being a Mags boy. But anyway, I just yep. thought I'd throw that in. Uh, no, Bruce, no, it wasn't Bruce Farr. No, Bruce Farr wasn't actually a Mags old boy. It was um, uh, Laurie um, Davidson.
5: Uh, and on top of that, you were talking about all blacks who, and sportsmen who changed the game, like Michael Jones. I reckon... Behind Michael Jones was a great captain, David Kirk, in 1987, winning the World Cup for New Zealand. Because I think David Kirk was, he was an intelligent guy. He was very urbane on and off the field, very literate, very authoritative. Well, he, he, but at the same time,
1: he was a Rhodes Scholar.
5: Yeah, but at the same time, he maintained a down-to-earth, generous, gracious New Zealand disposition. He was also a great signal caller on the field and could adapt to the game really quickly and successfully. And he was also a great player because he never backed down from getting involved in in the rough plays and getting his uh, hands dirty when he had to. And not just the All Blacks, but New Zealand loved the guy and I think he was a worthy captain to... Uh, lead New Zealand to victory in 1986. Yeah, it's
1: interesting, David Kirk. A good friend of mine is um, Dean Kenny. Now, Dean was a long-time halfback for Otago, played more than 100 games in the 1980s and went on one all-black tour in 1986 to France, sat on the bench in the famous Battle of Nantes where um, Buck Shelf had have his testicle ripped open and had to get someone back up Ouch. in the changing room. But uh, he actually kept David Kirk out of the Otago team and then David came up to Auckland and as they say, the rest is history.
5: Indeed. Hmm.
1: No good call Mark Lovely to have you on the program
5: No problem Thanks Mark
1: Thank you 800 150 811 is the number If you do want to phone the program Uh, Give us your thoughts Trophies You can text us through We talked about the Stanley Cup Monster of a trophy Got a photo with the Stanley Cup Went to the ice hockey Or it's just known as The Hockey Hall of Fame over there Uh, They refer to ice hockey as just hockey And hockey as we know it Is just known as field hockey um, but yeah, in my Toronto Maple Leaf shirt, a remarkable trophy. Um, yeah, so so what are some of those sort of, uh, I guess you've got the ashes, haven't you, that tiny little urn, whether there are actually any ashes in there or not, but the bales that were burnt, um, it's not exactly a trophy you're going to lift above your head, is it? But it's got history, and once you've got history and you've got brand, you can pretty much get away with any particular trophy. One of the great, trophies that you can win in cycling is winning Paris-Roubaix um, on the Cobblestones. Finishes yeah, in the town of Roubaix on an old velodrome and the winner gets basically a, a cobble. Really heavy cobble. But it's iconic because it's arguably the greatest one-day race or what they call the Spring Classics. It's the race that you want to win because it's got such history and tradition. Um, I guarantee that what Hi, happy what do you get a gumboot if you win the gumboot throwing competition Uh, 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 like it's one of the traditions if you win the Indianapolis 500 you drink a glass of milk but it's something you want to do because if you're doing it you've won the Indianapolis 500 you can text us here on double eight double it is coming up to 24 minutes away from 11 o'clock Mark Watson with you Anything you wish to discuss, we'll take a break and when we come back, we'll hear from Warren Gatland. A little bit of Jimmy Barnes, a bit of an Australian theme here on SENZ as we count down to 11 o'clock where Warren Gatland gave his first press conference after the news breaking that he will replace Wayne Pivak and once again become the coach of Wales. take Wales through to the Rugby World Cup including the upcoming Six Nations as part of the interview. He very much endorsed Scott Robertson, said New Zealand rugby need to make sure that he is given the opportunity. The best way of doing it is offer him a contract. Let's hear the conference.
3: The results of that review were that they decided to make a change and so I was contacted about would you be interested in talking to us and I always believe there's no harm in talking, so um, yeah, and they've there may be an offer, and initially the focus for me is on the the next nine months, ten months, was Six Nations. Uh, The exciting thing about international rugby, building into a World Cup, is that um, you have that extended period and time together to build for a World Cup, where when you're in other international campaigns, you you get a couple of weeks with the team and you it's about having to prioritise that sort of preparation, which makes it uh, challenging. So, yes, yeah, so I had that that approach and had to talk to the family about um, what they thought and their support and and we kind of concluded things over the last sort of 72 hours. I want to recognise there's a human side to this as well, you know, obviously with Wayne departing and, um, you know, that must have been tough as well. So my thoughts do go out to him and his family and I think it's, important though, I do recognize that and I know it's a pressure job and there's a lot of expectations but I the buzz of international rugby being, being involved in the six nations um you know world cup I think that was the the tempting factors to to sway me to come back really I, I loved my time in wales I loved the people the involvement you know how I was welcomed um, I wouldn't have stayed as long as I did if it wasn't really for that relationship with the fans and everyone. And, yeah, we had some success, but, um, and we had some disappointments as well. So uh, I think I can come and hopefully create an environment where we can uh, service the expectations of a Welsh uh, public and the media that um, want to see, hopefully see Wales perform. The advantage I've got is that I know the setup, and I know, you know, so many of the people involved. So I think I can hit the ground, you know, running. Obviously, a, there's a new group of players, and there's a process that I've got to go through um, over the next few weeks, and just getting a real feel for um, the place again. So it's not as this, it's not like 2007 or 2008 when I was coming in completely cold. Um, so I, I think that's a massive advantage that I've got. In terms of knowing um knowing wales like i said and knowing the setup and you know i, th- I think i can come in there and and hopefully be pretty seamless and and my in stepping into the role you know I, I need to go through a process where i need to talk to people um i need to get the lay of the land and you know how things are there within within the setup and then i'll i'll make the appropriate decisions about. You know what happens going forward. Look, I haven't. I haven't made any decisions on. You know what, what the setup looks like in terms of of the coaching setup. So I haven't even got that far in terms of um, going through that process. Like I said, uh, the last seventy two hours, it's kind of like it's been uh, fairly full on in terms of um, obviously having those discussions with Steve and Yian and, Jan and um, talking to family and stuff about making making this decision. So I've made this decision now, and I, I think from now on, um, you know, that's where the, this work takes place in terms of making sure that I get things right in terms of the setup up and, and the people involved. You know, if you're a flop and fail, you, you get... You get uh, you know, I'm, I'm under no illusions what the expectations are in the next uh, 10 months. So, um, yeah, but, you know, I've always loved the challenge. I've always loved going into environments and, you know, there are expectations and, you know, hopefully exceeding those expectations. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, that's, that's part of professional sport. You know, there are, there are ups and downs, and um, and you live by your results and your performances. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited about it, but it, you know, you understand that there's pressures and risks, and I'm, you know, I'm confident that I can come in and you know, hopefully, make a difference and get a side together that um, are proud to put that jersey on and. When they go out there and they represent Wales in front of home fans or away, that they're prepared to die for that jersey, and that's kind of those are my expectations. And uh, I, I don't expect anything less from the players in terms of what it means to play for Wales—the history, the expectation—and um, and if we can achieve that in a short period of time, and um, I think that will give us, you know, hopefully, the best opportunity to be successful.
10: This also puts an end to any speculation that you could potentially have been taking on the job at England Rugby. Were you approached by the RFU? Were you ever in a position where you were considering both roles?
3: Um, I'm only really here to talk about Wales, but all I can say is don't don't believe everything you read in the newspapers. There's one person at the moment in New Zealand who's you know who's been incredibly successful in terms of Razor and um, and. and he deserves an opportunity because of the success he's had in New Zealand rugby. If that comes along uh, for him you know, in the next you know, the next period, there's you know there's only one standout person that, and New Zealand sh- should be doing everything they can to make sure they secure his services long term and going forward.
7: Had a busy day? Catch up on what you've missed in the world of sport. It's extra time on SENZ.
1: OK, eight minutes away from 11, just with you for another few minutes or so uh, before we throw you across the ditch to our SEN partners over there in Australia. Just someone texting in saying, hi, Mark, nobody has changed uh, sport as much as Clark McConaughey in Billiards. Yes, now the great Clark McConaughey. Go and have a look at this guy, Walter Lindstrom, out of Australia. They just dominated the sport of Billiards, three-ball Billiards. Um, absolute iconic um, cuists at a time when Billiards was a massive, massive game. And I do encourage people, uh, this person said McConnelly, but I think they're trying to say McConnachie. It's not an easy name to spell. A game with the great Walder Lindstrom. Um, Actually, Clark McConnachie, people won't realise this, actually made the World Snooker Finals as well. Actually made the final of the World Snooker Championships. So when you're looking at snooker and seeing how big that is with the likes of Steve Davis and the likes of Ray Redden and some of those players in the 80s and 90s, um, yeah, go back in history and you'll find New Zealand had a pretty strong point of view in it as well. I'm very lucky these days to actually be doing quite a bit of work in the Q-sports sort of scene, more around 8-ball, 9-ball and 10-ball, which seems to be the global point of view at the moment. Those that have got the darts are trying to do the same with 9-ball. Um, And like any sport, once you get close to it, once you learn it, once you see the best in the world playing at it, you start to realise all the different subtleties and all of those little idiosyncrasies and all those little things that separate good from great and great from being an absolute legend. Um, And someone earlier just texting in too, saying how disappointing they thought the Women's Rugby World Cup trophy was. Yeah, look, it was, to be honest. Um, Yeah, uh, need to do better. Need to do better. But I mean... Often those trophies are just symbolic, aren't they? I just think that FIFA Football World Cup trophy is just simply simply stunning. Now, just a reminder too that Morocco take on Spain. That game will be 4am. Download the SEN app if you haven't got it. You can listen to that game live if you don't have access to Sky or some online platform. And then at 8 o'clock, boy, this is going to be one hell of a game. Are we going to see an upset? Because I think Portugal with Ronaldo... In fact, they've won a European Cup. They very much go into this game, I think, as favourites. They take on Switzerland. We haven't had an upset yet in the round of 16. Remember, Croatia made the final of the last World Cup, so I think they were always expected to beat Japan. I think the European nations are expected to beat the Asian nations. But when you look at it, and it's all said and done, we could come up with eight quarterfinals... And we basically end up with the powerhouses of Europe and the two major powerhouses of South American football, Brazil and Argentina. And for as much as football's growing internationally, it's still stayed the same, hasn't it? Yes, there's been upsets throughout the tournament, but the big playing nations will still be there, still contesting it. I'm just trying to think of the eight nations that will be left if it goes to form... I think Portugal haven't won it, Croatia haven't won it, but I think the other six nations all have. So people can argue a little bit that the Rugby World Cup is not the depth, it's a bit predictable, but you can maybe argue the same with the FIFA Football World Cup. Anyway, special thanks to Niv for putting the show together, he's been outstanding working with him for the last couple of days. I'll be back again tomorrow night. If you are travelling around the country, do take care. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure.